I'm gonna get my chalice. Yeah. Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast, episode 240. Um, there's too many guests on here for me to put them all in, so I just put super awesome can of friends. Uh, <laughs> um, so this will be a fun episode. We got Clackamas Miss Coop. Oh, howdy. <laughs> we got Ross the Bomb. Highly blessed. Got right, Dave. Good to be here. We got Marty. <clears throat> Hey, what's up, everybody? We got Fumador. We got a whole full house tonight, so it's a lot of fun. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us. And uh, yeah, we have kind of a fun show. Uh, we had a guest that was having all kinds of connection problems earlier that we couldn't get a solid connection with. Marty and I had uh, kind of uh, all but wrapped up the show, and then uh, all of a sudden we had a bunch of friends that could come on, so it worked out quite well yeah the reinforcement right thanks for coming so how, how's life down there in jamaica man we haven't had you on the show yet how's it going uh, it's great you know giving thanks um in a location you have some better wi-fi you know so i feel brave to you know say hi and how you're doing but really giving thanks in terms of the ganja scene jamaica we don't really get left behind. So I'd say it's very trendy right now. Well, let's put it that way. It's a very trendy place to be in terms of cannabis, the offerings and the prices that they might want to offer to hint, hint on the might, you know, in this, but uh, unusual, you know, we're doing good. And uh, side note, there's a little peek at a land race project. I just want to hint at that. We have a group that has sourced some quote unquote land races from you know good sources and these are all like mostly Indian African genetics from you know local tribes especially within the indigenous groups and so forth and they have been grown out in Jamaica for a while and they have been really granted themselves a dome like um what you call it now a 12-12 situation or an automatic flowering dome you know what do you what do you call it here um, a light deprivation system light deprivation yeah right so what we are trying to do now is really select these cultivars that immediately after taking clones, once they're rooted, we put them in there and we're trying to get some, you know, fairly stable, you know, 12-week, 14-week finishers. But they're still, you know, most of them are going 25, you know, 17. But we have highlighted, you know, just because we want the turnover and the medicinal production a little higher. So that's the only thing I'd kind of highlight. But the good thing is that we have a good resource of the long flowering ones that we can still take the chance and plant outdoors. And these are super ancient herbs, you know, so we really give thanks for the opportunity. You know, you may be living in a country that has some of the last remaining authentic cannabis seeds anywhere on this planet. And uh, that's really special because well, a couple of things happened in 87, 88, several people that were doing seeds in bulk were selling them to the uh, Mexican uh, brokers 
because they wanted the skunk. You know, that was the, the thing. Probably read too many High Times magazine or something. And um, so those are uh, many, if you took a brick of Mexican pot today and went through it at the seeds and just did some tests, you'd be stunned at the diversity of the plants because you're going to have indica and you know sativa and the whole nine yards. But on a better note, in the 70s, I knew some people that had gone to uh, Africa and to buy uh, cloth uh, fabric to sell to the design trade. So, you know, handmade cloth that only this tribe, you know, you got the idea this section of uh, whatever country. And so they brought these seeds back and they were doing some business. The other side of the group was doing some business with, you know, with the Jamaican uh, cannabis people. And they were really excited about getting these African seeds. It was like the mother, uh, you know, Even to mother this Africa. Day, African seeds to this day have a very high significance. The motherland, we say Jamaica is almost the heartbeat of Africa, if you want to, you know? Yes, right. So we really try to have that. And I would like to just straight to a point, just to say that the traditional herbs in the 60s, 70s, you know, ganja has always been with humankind, you know, from ever since. Maybe sure. the, the priority of the product might have been different throughout the generations, whether it be fiber, food, you know, regardless, medicine, but it has always existed on some, you know, on all phases, just, you know, which one has been presented more in priority at this particular time. So we see the medicinal industry unfolding and the recreational, so all these terminologies, but the different faces, you know, of ganja. And, you know, hopefully we see it moving back to, you know, the biodiesel and the fiber and these <clears throat> regenerative practices. Right. But the smoking ganja or the sacramental ganja, the ganja that was first introduced up north was planted from a different cultural viability. So yes, it became a cash crop. And then, you know, the faster the strain can develop and the higher the high. And, you know, that steered the breeding and the planting and the planters to fit the demand of the, you know, the priority population, you know. But we can see that the ancient ones are this community that hold on to the herb for the experience different from getting high are a more sustained experience. So it's not a consistent smoking, but a more sustained experience. All right, so these herbs would be the journey or the tool to carry you on the journey. While now the current herbs these days try to be like the destination. It's like they try to get you there very quickly, you know, so you will become not the tool itself. So I'm just saying that, you know, it was just a different time, a different era, and it, they were steered a different way. So the current herbs are selections. You know, you can understand why they would give you these experiences currently because of what they were bred to fit a certain demand. So it was, was really, really excited, you, you know? Sorry. I was really excited to hear you talking about long-term uh, sativas. Uh, the one that I grow, uh, which is uh, about 90% high, 
I mean, to do it right is 18 weeks. And I've had people say to me, well, you need to get a modern variety, you know, because that's too long. Well, define too long. That's relative to what is your goal? What are you trying, like you were just saying, what are you trying to achieve? And, uh, you know, I don't know. All right. Uh, I like to use the word experience. You yes. know, and I really love that word. So put it this way, a plant that matures in 12 weeks, the experience of its life that is going to pass on to you, great. But a plant that has been alive and takes 25 weeks or 20 weeks or, you know, whatever to mature, it just carries a different experience in its genetic makeup that is going to be able to pass on to you. And we have found, especially in the medicinal research, that one word keeps coming back. So people would say, yes, pain relief, this and that. But this word of balance, we have never seen it coming back so significantly until we start introducing these more long-term varietal extractions. And people just saying that their recovery experience or their ex is just a little more balanced. And you know, we have to go into detail and ask, you know, what do you mean by balance? You know, she said, yeah, I get pain relief from OG and pain relief from this, but this one I wake up and I'm happy, I can breathe more. Um, you know, so it, it, they, just, it, they just express a bit more balanced experience with these type of varietals. So we have just seen the need for it to be, if we're going to put it on a product market, we have seen, you know, a little significance. And I guess a point I've been knocking at for most people that are in the locations that can plant these type of herbs, I would definitely encourage you to get to these roots and because you can produce it on a mass scale at a low cost of production, you know, the, the demand for it will be there once you can present itself 100%. I am, this isn't an opinion, but, it, but it's not even that, but it's an observation. And <clears throat> the first time that I saw Sensimia was 77 um, of any kind. I mean, a, a tiny amount. So everything had seeds prior to that. And Thai would be the best example because uh, up to that point, that was the strongest uh, cannabis that I had ever uh, consumed. And I still would put it in the top three. And it was seedy as hell. And it's... This observation is that seeded, I don't believe, okay, this part is, is an opinion. I don't believe that seedless cannabis is any better per se than seeded cannabis. It may be easier to sell uh, because the consumer gets what they're paying for. But like that old song from the 60s, no stems, no seeds that you don't need. I'd like badass weed, you know. I'd like to interject there. What's up, homies? Um, Bob, good to see you on the channel, homie. I've been wanting to link up with you again for a minute, man. Um, I I, uh, I allegedly got some material over to uh, another country, allegedly recently, and um, everyone went went a little wild over it and we deduced that it, it was all seeded because I was breeding and that was the process. And we did, we kind of were wondering, scratching our heads on it. And that's what we were wondering, like, because it was it, it, the place it went to was a, a country that has a lot of hash come through that comes through it. And uh, um, in, in Thailand, I'll just say it, it was in Thailand. 
Um, and and the, the folks over there that were hitting up were like, it's this is next level. And we're like wondering, is it because the seed? Because it was nonsense to me, you know, and the plant got to go full term. I we I don't know, just kind of, yeah, throwing that out there. That we had that weird experience. I'm thinking about folks. like okay, the first like really strong was 71, 72 when uh, of course it had a song to go with it, so that made it more popular. Uh, Panama Red. That was a sativa and seedy as hell. Um, right now, we have some of that strain in Jamaica. We call it Red Beard because we had a lot okay. of workers okay. that went to Thank work you. on the Panama Canal. So they would come back. You know, everywhere people would trade seeds. But those that worked on the Panama Canal, we have a set community of workers that kind of went on that program. And a lot of them came back with that strain. And, you know, the Red Beard was bred out of it. So it's just one of those. And respect, Mr. You know, Jablooms. Greetings, greetings. But years. on the point of the, the seeded herb, before I forget, that I had this conversation. I can't remember if it was Jeff or... Well, it was one of them that does a lot of extractions. And they were saying that, like, they when, when they run the same strain and they have their seed... Oh, yeah, I think it was Jeff. Because what he does, when he makes his seeded bud, a lot of that... Yeah, Jeff Church? Is that who you're talking about? Jeff Church? Right, so he chucks yeah. that seeded bud for extracts, and he says that. So, for example, give me one of your strains, Dutch, that you're that you're known for. Just give the me black wa- the black wap gold. All right, so like that strain. Now, when you breed it, you'd have given him. You have taken the seeds and given him what you have. You know, you left over after you pollen after you chucked all the seeds. You've given him. He extracts it and made extracts and tested. it. And then you grow the same plant with no seeds and giving it and it takes and the extract of seeded plants always came back higher. So in in, in uh, potency that you're t- you're speaking about potency. Yes, and just diversity in terms of even cannab- um, cannabinoids on our whole. You know, it just had a right. wider picture on it. So that is the only you know makes I would sense. Say. Yeah, makes sense, right? Well, I can only tell you what they said. I really can't tell you. Me personally, from it's good, clean herb, I don't mind seeds in it. You know, you know, and yeah, so it's not a big deal. Most of my herb is not most of my herb is not nugget herb. I don't smoke that tight, but you know, that kind of nugget kind of herb, it's not mine. So my herb is seeds come out easy. <laughs> they don't hide. Every time a seed pops in like my joint or my bowl, I always have to wonder, man, was that the one? Was that the one <laughs> alien that was going to make me rich and put me on the cover of High Times, bro? And it just went pop. Like burn a lottery ticket. Like now you just don't know. <clears throat> yeah, no, I kind of I kind of agree. Like, you know, as somebody who's grown a lot, you know, anytime you have any, you know, herm or accidental seeds you know like that's always the stuff that like ends up in my head stash it's what i smoke and so like for me i i wonder if maybe it's just because people don't want to take the time to pick it out <laughs> or they don't want to have it pop in their joint when they're they, they don't want to have it pop in their bowl or whatever else but aside from that i can't say that i notice any real difference you know if it's good it's good if it's you know, it doesn't seem to no, I mean, the, the only downside would be like it's it is like I mean I, I use one of these grinders here <laughs> and I, I'm pretty good, you know. I deal with a lot of seeded weed, but I do get those husks in there every now and again. And, and so like to be fucking picky, picky, picky 
if I had to choose, I would take Sensimia. Uh, but I'm not, I'm, I haven't had like a chance to like, that's why I was asking the question. The group, I haven't had the chance. No, because to, like, it like, do a dab more of, high, of right? Sensimia well, or a dab of, of seeded and, and test it. So like, but we had that experience and it, it kind of made us think. And so like, I, I think there's something to it, man, you know, but when I, when it comes to breaking up herb, you know, well, that's, right, let's, I mean, let's, so let's how, how much about, time do you want to spend to break it up? Right, let's think right? about it differently then. In like, you know, in the breeding world, is there a stud or a gelding or, you know, what is the more preferred? You know, do you find that people that, you understand, is that the balancing, you know, how males kind of edge each other on without having kids? And the same thing with females, they kind of go into a bit of, you know, depression or, you know, chemical without, you know, having, you know, fulfilling the ability to be a woman who is having a child, blah, 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 you know, so... There are certain balances you can see here and there. There's a next thing that I can highlight. One of the, one of the fellows I contact with out of the Indian land race projects, uh, me and him converse a lot. We were saying that plants that have a lot of hermaphroditic tendencies, what we would do early is like the pre-flower, we just hit it with a bit of pollen, the early ones, and we find that the rest of the plants doesn't tend to show the hermaphroditic traits. So it's kind of one of those things that we're kind of fucking around with. So I know you kind of like that. Maybe you can play with it a bit, you know, but it's a way to kind of turn off that trigger. So if you know that first couple sets of sex and you kind of pollinate it, so at least you're only going to have 10, 12 seeds or whatever it might be. You know, those ones that grows right along the stalk, you know. So maybe you can try that to see what's going on. What? That no, looks like that Jamaica. That looks like Jamaica, man. That yeah, like so this is down in... Uh... This is down in Westmoreland, and I just wanted to be, uh, show people they have a huge amount of pheno variation in the fields, right? So if you if you had pollen and you went and hand selected uh, the, based on the structure of the girls in the field, you, you could really do a lot of selections in one single run because they, they you know they, they do these small breeding patches. At least the people that I know on the, in Westmoreland, I'm sure you you do it a little bit different, but um, kind of do a small little open pollination patch so you end up with a little bit yeah, more variation but, it's but like it, a yeah. seed stock it's really just to keep your seed stock alive for the next season so you want a small patch yeah a little nursery yeah? <clears throat> so, so then, then, then they go up to the, the flower <clears throat> side like this field i want to add this i know it's really difficult in this uh, sector to have a uh, an intelligent conversation about terpenes and terpenoids because they're so vastly misunderstood but when a plant is pollinated imagine the changes in terpenes and terpenoids that plant is going to produce to protect the seed against mold and insects it's not going to be producing pollinator attractors because that's over right 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 and so you're you're looking at a very complex system that as Steve has accurately pointed out, terpene and terpenoid and ketone production is a result of external stimuli. And what could be more uh, external than pollen from another plant? If you follow my uh, line of thinking here, I don't know that anybody's even studied what terpenes and terpenoids come off of a seeded plant. They haven't done a very good job on the sense of me apart, so I'm not holding my breath here. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, 
you know, you supposedly you can add something to your soil and it'll give you, I don't know, linalool or pinene or whatever is the big seller that week, you know? Well, in organic farming, if you want the, the, the linalool, you have to, because you're organic, you have to put it in your water and drink it for seven days. And when you pee, then you kind of, you know, so that's yeah. how you get it in the ammonium nitrate. It kind of chillates with the ammonium nitrate and then goes in that way. <laughs> I was Don't advocating you... using uh, the, uh, okay, there's two groups of lavender, like in cannabis, there isn't, but we've done this. There's indica and indica, right? Or uh, sativa and indica. So in the lavender world, you have medicinal and culinary. And the culinary is the one that smells like lavender, like your grandma's, you know, potpourri you might have had. But yeah. the other one smells like camphor because it doesn't have any linalool, but it has extreme levels of camphor. And if you make it uh, just, you know, tea, I hate that word, but if you just put some lavender flowers in water and let it sit for a day or so and stir it and then strain and drain, the camphor causes uh, all kinds of issues for adults, but then on the uh, eggs, it seals up the, uh, the vent uh, spot on the egg and it causes the egg to explode in about 18 hours. And so here you have this non-invasive, very, very powerful uh, pesticide. Even camphor oil. Even camphor oil has been very good when we use for it. Like it's one of the right. camphor, clove. There are a few of them that you can really draw for, for yeah. specific things, you know? Yeah. It causes no harm to, to your plants, to animals, to uh, birds, you know? No, no, And no. it's inexpensive. Yeah. Very inexpensive. Definitely. I'm uh, I'm, I'm 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 including my IG crew. Uh, trying to get to get them to hop on, and uh, you, if you got a, a, an email for Vision, Steve, maybe you should send him a link. He might be interested to hop on. Yeah, whatever. Uh, we're good. Where is it? Uh, just shoot me a, a thing here. Or uh, green jeans. It'd be cool. It'd be fun. I want to talk more about the sativas, Ben, because, uh, Bob, to be honest, um, I am totally guilty of, like, writing it off, you know? Like, I, I, I got into cannabis because of pain in, in an accident, and I went deep, and I'm super, like, indica all day, OG Kush varieties, gas. It's and the same thing, man. You know, but I, I got some Congo, and I got some Ethiopian from my friend uh, Joel Itao, and um, I'm really enjoying it. But I want to kind of, uh, I want to find out, like, I'm interested in the, like, I cook when I cook, it's not slow, right? So everything you're saying makes sense in my head. And um, typically, I, I'm not down with those terpenoline-like flavors, but there's something else out there that I'm, I'm convinced about, and I want I want to experience it. And so, um, you know. If I were going to describe good sativa, and I would include much of what comes out of the Caribbean, um, at one time, all of Mexico. Uh, no question on that one. Yeah, man, I've had good grits from Mexico. Mexico, I'd have Mexico and probably one of my top five in yep. terms of herbs, honestly speaking. I think the one that we got was, I can't pronounce it, but Oaxacan something, another yeah, highland. Oaxacan. Yeah, Oaxacan. Highland something, something. But in Mexico... Said, 
And this was maybe like 2099-2000 in about that region, you know. And we did a whole lot of we did a whole lot of breeding with it and the Jamaican. And um allegedly the zona was birthed out of, you know, buckets like several five-gallon buckets of seed. Like ridiculous amounts. But what I'm saying is a strong, strong genetics, very hardy, very tough. I mean. Once you dry it properly, you don't have to put it on the fridge. This would stay like good cured herb for long. It, yeah. You would never know that it was there for five months or six months. <laughs> or one of some strong, strong ganja. You know? I got three That's pounds. That's an interesting thing, man. Uh, that Ethiopian. <coughs> excuse me. Excuse me. I, uh, I crossed it up with a Sky Cuddler Kush from... Uh, uh, Freeborn selections, right? Hey, that hey, that that strain was actually good. That name that you just called, Sky Cuddler. We did yeah. that maybe five, four, four years or so. That was a really good one. Our Jaro Sky Cuddler, something like that. Yeah, but that yeah. name, that name ring a bell. Yeah, yeah. And I crossed it, I crossed it with this Ethiopian, and I'm I'm calling it the Shesh Shesh Cuddler, Sheshamani Cuddler. But it it uh I, I uh made some F2s of it. And I, I just kind of grabbed a branch and threw it in the kitchen. I was like, my wife will grab this and smoke this. And I think she'll really like it. If I just kind of put it there and, and th said, thought like, let's see what happens. It fucking hung out for four or five, six months, dude. No problem. And I, and I broke it down, started pulling seeds out, smoked it. And I was like, damn, in the kitchen with all the, all the, everything we cook, dude, you know, all the flavors in our kitchen, dude. And it, yeah. It was, so like, that was interesting. I think the high dollar, uh, the high dollar weed in the future is going to be like hanging your really nice bud in gourmet kitchens. <laughs> <laughs> I got it's a, a curry, curry chicken, curry, curry flavor from the Indian chicken. Banana Republic it. weed. You're going to go to the Gap or Banana Republic. Duck weed, duck weed with they, the curry flavor. <laughs> they call this weed Ohakan Spears. The way it was harvested, so you have a really lanky sativa and off the stock they would just chop the branches and hung the branches so when you got this weed it would be in 30 to 36 inch long and seeds the biggest seeds i've ever seen on any cannabis yeah, yeah, and yeah, i've yeah. seen a lot of from a lot of varieties around the world i've never seen any seeds this big and that was 40 44 years ago this month almost. I still remember that weed. It's definitely, right. it's in the top two. No, I, I would like you to give a, a size description because when I tell people that a lot of those herbs will give you seeds like M&M, like skittle side seeds. I'm not, obviously not as big as an M&M, but I'm telling you in that size range, ridiculous size. Uh, I've I never seen such like large seeds. I wanted to give a quick shout out to Wendy from Sunabis. I think the largest seeds that I've personally seen came from plants of hers. So shout out to her and, and all the cool work that she's doing. She does a lot of educational work for the community. And uh, she personally is the largest seeds I've seen with my own two eyes. Big up, Wendy. And that was, uh, uh, I couldn't even imagine, but it doesn't matter. But, uh, this was not a Sensimia plant, the way it grew. I mean, it hadn't been messed with. You could tell this was as close to the, the source as possible. And, but what's interesting is in Mexico, 
Oaxaca is a, well, first of all, Mexico is a very diverse country. Anyone who's been there can, can understand that statement. But Oaxaca is like one of the big cultural centers of Mexican uh, society. It's, it's like the epicenter of the uh, purest uh, food, Mexican food, cuisine, if you will. Um, it's, if you ever get a uh, chance to go to Oaxaca, you know, take some, a couple hundred bucks so you can eat some of the finest food on the planet. Uh, no tacos <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, what's so, with the uh, cheese? You know? That's what Mexicans well, always ask Americans. What's with the cheese? You know, you well, cover uh, everything in this mound of cheese, you know. This cheese is good. Come on, it's got that umami. It's got that fulfilling whatever. It's cheaper than beef. Oh, I agree, it's good. You know? it's just... Leave out the cow man. Leave the cow alone. You don't, see a lot of the, you don't see a lot of super cheesy cuts going around, at least in Oklahoma. They're kind of rare. I, I, I ran across one last year and we very much cherished it and tried to, to hold onto it and disseminate it to make sure we didn't lose it. So They've got some UK blue cheese going around out there in Michigan. Wow. Is that a skunk, Fino? I'm honestly not sure. Okay. I know it's super cheesy and I love it. Yeah. I wish we would see more of that cheesy weed. Yeah, I got something coming. It's called the earthy cheese, you know? But maybe by next year. Okay. We have the F4 already, so we just want to take it to at least F6 and then put it out, you know? Hey, we is had this. Dutch, is Dutch still here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, here's a description that I've always used. The difference between, and first of all, you understand these terms really annoy me, but the difference between indica and sativa is that one gets you stoned and the other one gets you high. So it kind of like where you want to go. That's my uh, read. And good sativa will get you oh. soaring in that like super consciousness thing that you're never, at least I can't. To me, you know, like, I grew up smoking Afghani hash, and to this day, I think the idea of hash just, ugh. I, if I never had hash again, it'd be okay. So, so what, is your, what is your thoughts on, you know, mainly what people consider to be indica dominant, to be oh, heavy bursting cuts and cuts that have high CBN? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't grow them. I wouldn't, I don't want to smoke it. It's just, uh, to me, it's like something... You know, when you want to get a, a quart of milk and a box of Oreo cookies, you know, and sit on the couch and watch reruns of Bowling for Dollars or something, it's probably a good weed. But if you want to, you know, do something creative, smoke some really good sativa, something from the Caribbean where people gave a shit about it for decades or centuries, really. And because it was a, it was a, a plan of the people. That's how South Africa got so many strains. It was one of the biggest ports in the world for centuries. What did sailors carry? They carried their weed with them. That's why the diversity of seeds in South Africa is completely different than up north where it's uh, isolated countries and villages. And, you know, this valley is separated from that valley and they don't, haven't talked for 300 years. I mean, 
you know, it's a different scene. We talked about that a little bit on Fumi's show about how cannabis originally was part of every ship repair kit. They always had pine trees and Bean. hemp seed in order to make, yeah, and, and beans and a couple of other things as part of their, their kits. Anytime they went to sea, so that yep. they crash landed, they could build new masts, build new ropes, new canvas, yep. and, but they needed to grow the materials to make it. So <coughs> they always never left home without those seeds. So that's one of the reasons why cannabis is so disseminated around the planet is because it was used and cultivated so heavily for ship use and both sail making, rope making, and the resins for, for you know, water sealing. So, yeah. That's fucking crazy, man. That's like a that's like a three four year escape plan. I mean, what else yeah, are you gonna do? Yeah, yeah. You can, exactly. At that point, you that could just give up, or crazy. you could basically wait four years. You know? Yeah, you're gonna be there but for like, four years either way. So they didn't have cell phones and on GPS. Our cell phones yeah. as we talk across the country. <laughs> you know, <Right>? but like. <laughs> I still Better maintain you get it. used to. Someone's parrot. <laughs> yeah. So maybe let's fly by. It's about Mexico, pre-Columbian art not reflecting any cannabis plants. I mean, every every culture from the first one that took some mud and smeared it on a wall and created a painting has memorialized the plants that were important to that culture, medicinal, food, whatever it was. And yet you don't see cannabis plants. So I'm, I'm a little puzzled about this whole land race Mexican thing. Yeah. Well, so I was, so originally uh, so there's a heavy, uh, what was it, the, the, the horseman that used to live up in the steppes of Tibet, I can't remember, uh, the right. Scathians, or what is it, uh, Scathians, Scathians, something like that, they were the ones that helped disseminate a lot of the cannabis across Asia in the early days. There's a really good book that has the word Buddhist and drugs in it. It's a controversial book, but he traces the history of the Buddhist monks in Thailand and uh, well, more Central Asia in the, uh, what we would call the hashish and uh, deal. I mean, those guys in Afghanistan weren't making all that hash for centuries to get high. It was a revenue stream, you know? No, but you know, like I've, I'm, there's something happened with the crossing. You know, we have to all like really own up in like I agree. You know, the cross the crossing of these these sativas that were running around in the in the 70s and 80s with these afghanis that came in is really what changed the game and in potency and all these these things that they're like it was all these, over, it was all about canopy control that was the only reason you think well I, I was it was it about canopy control or was it just like the natural way that like people when people went over to these countries and then brought back seeds and then just like we're like well let's cross them okay this is yeah, me this is yeah. the one of the big one of the biggest seed companies and one of the original the company you would know as sensi seeds yeah yeah and the one of the uh their breeding stock is centered on a plant called afghani and hashtag and numeral one afghani number one 
And in their first catalog, before they were Sensi Seeds, they were known as the SSSC, Super Sativa sure. Seed Club. And you can download that and find it online. Yeah. Okay. And in the description on that plant, they stated that they got it from Sacred Seeds in the Pacific Northwest, which was an underground thing that came <coughs> back before I was born. That's a long time. Okay. And that they had gone through a thousand seeds, a thousand Afghani seeds to find a keeper. And you know what? I believe it because every time I grew, and these came from the, the uh, importers, you know, they were, uh, got them in Afghanistan, moving loads of hash, right? I was, I was anything but impressed. I mean, it was like, really? It was like feral. It was like enough. Sure. I mean, I'm sorry, but it just wasn't there. You could get better, uh, better plants out of Mexico. I mean, seeds. Right, but was like a lot of the like, I, what I'm getting at is like the, it was at the crosses, the hybrid hybrids mm-hmm. that were that, that, that made like you know the NL, the NL five A's, that that sort of stuff. I'm, right. I'm you know I, I'm listening to history as people regurgitate it and dig it up on on podcasts and stuff, and I'm starting to like it's it's exciting to me, and so you know, of course, it is. It's inter- It's an interesting history, and. It's kind of sad what my generation did to cannabis. I think they just disregarded the cultural forces behind these plants. And hey, we're white, and uh, you know we'll just take them and we'll make it better. You know, it's hubris. Some things don't need to be fixed. And, well, you know, that's my opinion. I can speak on on my side that in Jamaica, especially the primary purpose of the ganja was before exporting became a big thing. Sure. You know, was more on the, you know, consumption rate for what, you know, sacramental purposes and, you know, religious and whatever you might want to context it. However, once it became a cash crop, it was all about speed of production. Yep. And then it's been a highly illegal product. Why would I want to wait six months, seven months, eight months to reap when I can harvest a crop from start to finish in eight weeks, six weeks. I remember in the early 90s, we started seeing a herb that started calling white indica, you know, which well, I would say probably is more like some white widows or whatever. I don't know what to describe it as, but they were short, dark green and looked like almost cactus. And once they were just consistently breeding to get for a six week plant, so what I hear people terming as autoflowers, we have seen these genetics from, you know, 2000s coming right up. That from you drop that seed, within six weeks, you're going to have a harvest, eight weeks. It might not be very tall, but you just plant a lot of them so you can cycle through a lot faster. You know, so as I said, the, the direction of the breeder, depending on demand, really dictates a lot of what is priority or what is surface level at the market. But you will always have some niche things that will never go away. So you still have pockets of communities that will tell you, no OG, no Kush. They don't want any seeds that you try to bring to them. They don't want any varieties. They are very good 
you know, they're kind of happy with what they have. If you bring it in flour and want to consume it, you know, maybe they might think about it, but they're not really interested in the, the, the poisoning their genetics as they would see it, you know. So, you know, like you have spent a lot of time and developed these cultivars that fit in your era. You can drop the seed, it grows, it finishes. You really don't want to taint it at this particular point, you know. So, or for whatever reason, everybody has a reason. But I can just tell you that these happen. It still happens, but it might not be the majority right now. So mm -hmm. most farmers farm, but you still farm your little headstocks. Like what do you plant for your personal smoke? Maybe you go through a couple of years where you're planting a big scale where you just kind of pick a little bit here and there. But when you're comfortable farming, you farm something for the dispenser down the road, something for who is going to extract. But your personal head stash, it's not about what people think. You know why you want that herb, you know? The ugly skunk or the whatever it might be. Yeah. Well, and that's like, that's ultimately like where, where my questions are. Like I'm, I'm, the, I'm the addict after that fucking and it's the, for me it's it's um it's the it, the mouth feel the taste translates to the high it, it, uh, in a lot of ways and, and maybe i maybe that's just the way i've learned to, to, to understand it from the way people have taught me but like i'm really there there's a there there like I, I smoke a lot of indica but there's certain ones that like light me up and put me in in the mood where I'm creative, like, and I want to play music, and I want to like, I, I I'm dancing when I'm watering, you know, and give me that. But when I smoke, but I, like a, a lot of what I, what comes across my my, my comes across to me, uh, haze and these typical things, they just don't light me up. They don't hit my palate, you know. And so that's why I'm like, kind of like, I'm digging deep because I want to. I, I believe, you know, what you're saying, like, and I and it, everything you're saying makes sense and and. Um, I haven't had the experience yet, you know? And the beauty is in the journey. It's not a destination. You know, the joy, the beauty is just a journey. So we give thanks at the moment. So a lot of the herbs that we get from Africa, even traditional Jamaican herbs, is workman herb. Just like how you're smoking now, no construction site, no form of work happens without a spliff in the worker's mouth. So they're not looking for the narcotic experience, really, for the narcotic experience, you know. But think no, of it I more do, like I a do. tool, you know. And, it's like a I tool. I'm one of those fuckers that that like, cause I I I'm all day like this, yeah. And I, you know, charging hard, but I'm smoking the the OGs all day. Yeah, and that's what I'm trying to say. At the end of the day, it reaches the point where it is just a tool. You are really the the, the vessel on the journey. You understand? So if you decide that you need to work, no matter what type of herb you have, brother, once you smoke your chalice and you're getting to work, you do what you have to do. So it's that point as well when you connect to it. And if you know that you're taking one puff to get this or five puff, it's a symbiotic relationship. And you get the mission accomplished. If you look around and say, well, I ain't have that much to do or I kind of feel good, you find yourself relaxed. It enhances the moment or enhances the mood that you might with. I won't disagree that some will steer it a bit faster than some. But once it's really start to balance in, it's not really about getting higher again. You understand? That connective experience sure. becomes sure. more magnificent than anything else. Yeah, yeah. No, you, I know. I, probably, if, like, I, if, I, if I hear you, you're saying less about the up and down and more about the, 
Yes. And I totally agree. Like I'm not about that when I have to like take a break for whatever reason, but there's been an hour or two that, that I couldn't smoke three hours, four hours. And I come back and I get hit and I'm like, it's, it's all right. It's, you know, but it's not productive. It stops me in my motion. Well, I'm sure I'm going to come off like a total weed snob. Go ahead. I mean, that that's why I like to have like four or five different kinds, you know, like I don't necessarily like to just grow one type or smoke one type, like for me personally, because you know, just like Josh, I'm, I'm an, I'm an all day kind of consumer. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, for me, I go a lot by on, on smell and taste and in the moment, you know, like I have, you know, a number of jars and, you know, I open it up and I already kind of know if it's strains that I've had before, you know, what their effect is going to be and kind of the time of day that I like to smoke them. And, uh, so I like to switch it up. I don't like to keep it the same. And I feel like it allows me to have less up and down and more sustained, like you're talking about, because I don't, you know, <clears throat> I don't, I don't like the crashing, I guess, would be like the, the, the coming down aspect of it. And, you know, I don't like it to variate. I just like a nice constant experience. And I don't, I don't find really any type that's anti-productive for me in terms of like certain strains that make me, you know, lazy or the stereotypical sort of couch lock, kind of like what Bob was saying, if I got shit to do, it doesn't, you know, and maybe that is because I'm consuming all the time. So there's no, like, it's not going to stop me from doing what I have to do. I just never do anything. So <clears throat> for me, I've never had a strain that would like, you know, make me just blow everything off in that stereotypical kind of stoner way well we're all different <laughs> body types we're all different things like i i, I actually am in in a great amount of pain i don't talk about it a lot but like i used to i got into cannabis because from pain and uh, right. i'm in a lot of yeah. pain and so like it, it yeah these heavy indicas set me straight so i can work you know cascaded you got something to say bro oh he i yeah I was, I was wondering if i could babble for a minute um now that I kind of got an idea what you guys are talking about, um, there's there's like three things I wanted to bring up. Uh, one is is tolerance and and the ability to change varieties based on how your tolerance is accepting the variety you've been consuming. Like I I know me and and a lot of other people when we get to like you get to puffing on the same flower for a long time, it loses efficacy, it loses effectiveness. It, it takes more flower to get the same feeling because you're building that tolerance. But when you switch to a different variety, sometimes it'll just kick you right in the pants um, because it's got a different profile. So it, it's playing on different, um, um, not to be too scientific or too woo woo, but it's playing on a different aspect of, of who you are. It's, it's, it's enhancing and downplaying different uh, different parts based on what you were smoking before. So it, it affects your tolerance different. Uh, that's always one thing I try to keep in mind. Another thing from the herbalism world that we talk about, it has, um, it has its roots in Ayurvedic medicine, which is, is from India. Uh, and Ayurvedic medicine is actually older than traditional Chinese medicine. Traditional Chinese medicine was born out of Ayurvedic medicine. But in Ayurvedic medicine, they have a 
it's it's a constitutional assessment. So it's a some it's it's a deep deep topic, but some of it is is lifelong. It's it's set in in stone as, as to who you are, and it has to do with how you interact with different things you put in and on your body. It has to do with how your body metabolizes, how you how you manage heat, how you manage environmental stressors. Um, and that has a lot to do with your psyche and how stable or unstable you are, how how prone to addiction you can be, how um, how you process things. And and as you go through life, so you have this overarching portion of your constitution that never really changes, but within various stages of your life, when you're a child, when you're in puberty, when you're a young adult, when you're an actual adult, when you're aging, and then you're, you're towards the end of life, this constitution will change and certain things that weren't stressors on your system before can become stressors and things that were stressors before can become tolerable. Um, I always use a, a personal example of mine that because of the way that my life worked out, I ended up being into my mid twenties and I quote unquote, didn't have my shit together. I didn't have, I hadn't graduated college or high school. I hadn't made it into college. So I had no like academic foot to stand on, which in my family is, is always been toted as something really important. So I always felt like I was lackluster in comparison to where I should have been um, just as a self comparison. I didn't have a license. I didn't have um, like, I, I couldn't take care of myself. I, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a license. I didn't have a degree. I didn't have a certificate. I didn't have a diploma. I'd, so with each one of those things, my self-confidence was, was low. And uh, I was having, you know, relationship problems and uh, every aspect of my life was a low. And I found myself unable to tolerate what we would call sativas or really heady strains. I couldn't handle the increase of mental activity for, that comes with those, those varieties. But as I got my stuff together, as I got my license as I got in college and out of college, as I found my partner for life, as I started to build myself into the man I'm actually supposed to be, my confidence came up, my self-esteem rose, my ability to take care of myself wasn't eroding at who I was anymore. And all of a sudden I started to crave the mental activity of those sativa based strains. I didn't have the same stressors before because I had shifted into a different phase of life. It took me seven years to get my stuff together. So I went from being a young man to not an old man, but a man. And, and through that shift and through all those life changes, I, I changed my, my intake, my, my preference, because I had altered my my constitution. I hope that makes sense. Um, so that's, that's uh, something that I don't think a lot of people consider because we're just not, we're not taught this in the Western world. We're, it's not something we talk about. 
it's almost um, taboo. It's almost on that taboo level where we don't we don't talk about the things that shame us and we don't talk you know it's very ig we don't talk about the bad parts of life it's all here's my glamour here's my glitz i'm doing so great look at me when in reality we all have these different struggles and these different strifes in life and that has a a play on what you can put in and on your body whether that's food medicine cannabis whatever um so then the, the third part I wanted to bring up, I actually need to, to share my screen for this one, um, just a second, is that the genetics have changed. The genetics of the plants we're consuming, I love this picture, if I can get it to pull up here, there we go the genetics that we're dealing with are different and i've covered this on a few other shows before but i'm excited to talk about it with you guys and get your because i, I want to hear you guys your feedback and see how crazy i am here at the end of this um I, I like this particular picture you guys can see it i hope um where it shows basically in in a color format the progression of of cannabis variation as time has progressed so um something in the in the wild species that would be the anything pre 1960s the 60s the 70s uh probably i mean coot can probably correct me here but probably the early 80s and then we started to see the drop off of imports the rise of homemade cultivation whether that's outdoor or the the rise of indoor growing and you start to get into early domesticates people aren't they're not importing as much they're working with the seeds that they already have and they're starting to select and they're starting to remove variation and they're starting to um pick out pieces that they like and work those that's where you get like haze and skunk and uh, i'm gonna miss some but that's where you get the old, old, like almost IBL worked lines. You get some of these early domesticates. And then you get into the late 80s, the 90s. And that's that's the heart of this this early domesticates. We still have a lot of variation. There's still a lot of a lot of um yeah, a lot of variation within the in the um gene pool that we're working with, but imports have pretty much died off they're not influencing the the genetics anymore of the the cluster the core base of of cannabis that's being traded and that's where you get like the the deadheads you get the um, all that all that trading that's going on all these um people that are working with what they've already been given and they're not really bringing in anything new Your you fast forward your timeline is so accurate. It's uh, like you lived through it. Um, and I can tell you that by the mid 80s, people, I say you bought, uh, by that time we were weighing. Before that, it was a bag, right? So say you went through an ounce and you found a couple seeds. The person that you bought it from would give you $5 a seed. And that went up the line. Uh, there were no more imports after uh, Reagan because the draconian laws that uh, the Republicans passed. Before, I mean, 
you can get caught with 100 pounds and say 78, and you might do a year. But my God, after these uh, Cretans got into office, you know, you were looking at mandatories of 10, 12 years, and who's going to do that for what weed? Not when you could move cocaine. So the import stopped. I mean, that was it. And uh, in like, say, 82, it was over. But that was it, you know, coming across the border. I'm talking about any kind of volume, you know, where you could actually uh, get a distribution on it. But yeah, your timeline's spot on, so. Looks like Black Sales. Yeah, I got I to gotta call it a night, y'all. It's really good hanging out. Really good to see y'all, Coot, Dutch, everybody. How do people find you? How do people find you? Uh, you like com on Instagram and Cannabuzz at BlackSaleMarket. And then also uh, check out Seattle Chronic Seeds because he just got one of my 320-watt LED cannons with a UVB, 310-nanometer UVB supplement. So we're going to do a legit experiment with that and test THC levels and shit. Um, but yeah. Bro. Come on. We got to cool. talk. Oh, dude. Hey, they're, they're expensive, man. They're, they're custom as fuck. And I got to order this stuff from Australia. But if you want He's one, I'll homie. build you one. Rob's the homie, dude. He's over here all the time. Like he was over here today. He'll be here tomorrow. So we oh, really? Chat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 He should, he should be getting that thing in the mail like early next week, man. I sent it like a day or two ago. We should talk though. Let's talk. Let's let's just chat offline. Let's do it. Well, yeah, we'll let him run it and see what's up. Maybe he needs more wattage, maybe less. We'll dial it in. But uh, anyways, guys, have a really great night. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes, thanks, buddy. Sorry, right. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Coot. I just wanted good to let night, him, uh, pop up. Oh, good night, Black Cell. That's all I was trying to. Good night, brother. To to put the polish. Let me let me put the polish on this and I'll, I'll give the mic up here for a minute. But you get into uh, you get into I always I always think of it as now maybe you guys have a different beginning here. I'm, I'm curious, but I always think of Blue Dream as being the beginning of the hype train. That's when everybody started to really fanboy out about one particular cut for the whole year and everybody grew it and it was everywhere. And then after that, we got cookies and all these other things I don't want to name. Um, <laughs> it's kind of that's, fun. that's where you get into the the modern varieties. Now, if, if you look at the picture, the, the lack of color is, is, is apparent. And these modern varieties don't have the, the cannabinoid profiles that their predecessors did. And so part of what we were all, what you guys were all talking about before is I wanted to highlight the shift in the cannabinoid profiles due to selection, due to laws, due to imports dying, due to the culture as, as it sits. Um, I just thought that it was a really interesting point to bring up because it, it has a lot to do with why people smoke what they smoke. Um, where Coot's where favorite, the one is more more towards the wild species side not towards the modern side and, and a lot of people that are getting into cannabis now have no idea what the the cannabinoid profiles of these older genetics really are are all about or, or capable of because they're stuck in this modern varieties box on the far end of the picture so 
with that, I, I'm pretty much done, but I just wanted to highlight those couple of concepts because they have a lot to do with how we see this plant, how we interact with this plant, what this plant does for us. And, and something I wanted to add to that, and this is something that Coot and I have talked about in a couple of episodes of Fumi's show, is that you know we, we're all now growing in similar ways with similar synthetic nutrients and stuff like that. That means we're going to get similar genetic expression, right? You're not going to get a huge diversity uh, compared to an outdoor or soil setting that has significantly more potential variables, right? So, uh, of course, we're going to end up with these, you know, just for that reason alone, separate from all the other reasons that you just listed, just that reason alone means those gene, only those specific genes are going to be activated for those terpene expressions. Uh, and, and Coot and I have talked a lot about that, you know, kind of in terms of how do you increase a terpene expression? Increase your immune system response that's non-pathogenic, you know, however it is that you can do that. And that, it's a slew of different ways, right? But that's the key to, to high terpenes, regardless of what, it, what cut you have. Yeah. yeah, and I think one other thing too is, you know, once humans started breeding it, I feel like, you know, the human air is going to come in. How many, how many grows have you been in where you're like, what clone is that again? Or how many seed storage places have you been, have you found a bag of seeds that aren't even labeled? And then they're like, oh yeah, that's, that's this one. And how many times have you got a clone that was supposed to be one thing and turned out nothing like it was supposed to or or pop seeds that turned out nothing like they were supposed to so i think that in addition to um uh the lack of variety that we introduced we also sort of introduced some of these sort of accidental frankenstein sort of uh genetic pairings that nobody really intended on um so i think that that's another interesting twist to your plot line there absolutely unequivocally not only has the cookie cutter approach to genetics solidified that it's all going to be the same it's like doing christmas cookies you can have a hundred different shapes right but at the end of the day they're all going to be the same because they're based on the same material and now you back it up with, oh, you're not using ABC? Why are you still using XYZ? And so, you know, you got to get in the hymn. You know, everyone wants to sit on the same pew in the church, right? And sing out of the same hymn book. It's human nature. And that's, you know, thank God for people like uh, Bob that gives a rat's ass about what he does and the keeping that set of genetics alive and don't doesn't fall into the trap because it's easy to do. I feel you, but every time I you hear- You mentioned Blue Dream, but let me, let me address that because that one really sticks in my mind. I didn't really get involved with cannabis from say 1980 till 2010. And that's when I got a card. And the reason I got a card is I wanted to get in, I was legal in Oregon. I could, uh, they had forums set up where you, everybody proved they have a card and you could exchange plants, seeds, medicine, whatever. And so my first one, my first uh, maiden voyage into this uh, morass using Fox Farm Motion Forest, of course, and Tiger Bloom and the other crap was Blue Dream. And it made it to like day 28 
And I just, you know, took a knife and went, you're done. My second one was some crap called Purple Urkel. Uh, but no, this one's different. No, it wasn't. It wasn't different. And anyway, I ran through, I mean, over 20. And I just went, my God. And they have cups and people win? What? What are you judging this on? You know, the worst one was uh, OG Kush. And I got that one from legitimate sources if there is such a thing in this deal in California. And like I said before, I've never used so many bamboo sticks to hold a plant up. What a genetic train wreck. So, yeah, you know, we're, we, uh, we live in a world where everyone wants to produce the wine with the cork in it, but most of it's the uh, metal screw lid, you know what I mean? The bottle stuff that costs, you know, two buck chuck kind of stuff. Anyway, I'll get off. You know, two buck chuck's all right, man. Don't, don't yeah. knock two buck chuck. It's all right on a party. They'll get the job done. If I hear that one more goddamn time at a dispensary, it'll get the gut job done. Like, God damn it. I'm not trying to get the job done. Why do you go? Why would you need to go to a dispensary? <laughs> that makes no sense. Oh, well, you do have to hear and again, hear and again. And like, I'm trying to sell weed. So like, I go to a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, you know, that's what I do. Last so, time yeah, I went like, to a dispensary. That, that, is, that is never the selling point. Like, it'll get you high. <laughs> Like, goddamn, everything in this fucking store is going to get me high. <laughs> then you have to expect it. Remember, you have Karma. Well, some of it solution. won't, man. Some of it will just... Yeah. Go ahead, Bob. No, I was just saying, yeah. Karma is a solution for every grow Christian. And when you get to the dispensary level, that's the jargon, man. It'll get the job done. Come on. That's what the whole mission was from the beginning, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm an asshole. 100%. <laughs> My standard answer back in the day was, you know, when the person would say, well, is it any good? And I would say, well, I've sold worse. And then you drop the conversation, you know? So, you know, when you got a load, you know, I mean, a big load, like a couple tons, you do what you got to do. You got to move it, right? You can't philosophize and, you know, you took it on and you got people there that want their money, you know? Welcome to reality. I went to one of the three legal grows in Texas the other day. And uh, in Texas, you have to have your dispensary, your extraction and cultivation all in one building uh, under their licensure. So that was something I have never seen before. Because normally you cannot legally license those three on the same property. So that was uh, most certainly a first for me. So that, that was kind of interesting. Yeah, shout we do out a to, different, uh, Texas do different original, uh, Shout out to Texas Original uh, Compassionate Cultivation for giving me a tour. I, I have a whole about eight long video, uh, eight minute long video on uh, all the different rooms that are uh, not all, but uh, many of the different rooms that they have there. Uh, you know, for people yeah, to see. Keep your keep your eye on Texas. Uh, it will go the way of the recreational um, here pretty pretty quickly. They're not yeah. going to call it. They're not going to call it recreational. They will call uh, it adult use cannabis. I bet there's going to be Joe Rogan weed within the next 28 days. 
I mean, yeah. I, mean, I grew up in a time in this trade where you had two rules. You stay out of the Southeast completely, you know, as far as taking weed into. In Texas, go east till you smell it, and then south till you step in it. Avoid at all costs, because you could do life, you know, for five pounds and 78, you could do life in Texas. I don't want to do life anywhere, but if I had Texas, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd get cyanide some way. Well, I mean, here it's gotten a lot better. The sentiment uh, with local law enforcement is that they have more important things to focus on. Um, well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, so like, you know, I do a lot of education with, with local sheriff's departments here in the North Texas area, particularly around hemp, like how to, how to identify, how to approach a farmer, how to go about interacting with someone who's growing hemp and you know, understanding the legal pathways and just the gray areas and protecting themselves. So, you know, I definitely get a sentiment from these sheriff's deputies that it's like, you know, they understand that they have to uphold the law, but man, there are just way more important things that they could be doing with their time. And they, they, they really are, are behind the idea that, you know, it, they, it's been successfully regulated um, in other states for over 10 years now, and it can definitely be replicated in Texas. If anything, it's, it would be beneficial. I mean, they all, the vast majority of them are definitely on our side. And you know, I, I've, I've, I've worked with regulatory drugs. bodies here and, and it's, it's, it's in the pipes. It's coming down. Uh, I can tell you, it's going back it's 70 years has come across that border in Texas that, I mean, it, this is anything new. Uh, so, yeah, they've had their hands full for decades and decades. Well, since we all got motorized back in the 20s, 100 years ago, you know, so. I can tell you this week I was, uh, uh, allegedly smoking weed in a park and had the cops walk directly by in, in Austin, Texas, and they didn't even bat an eye as to what we were doing. So um, Delta 8 and CBD is so fucking prevalent now in Texas that they can't tell the difference. So they have no idea what you're smoking. It all smells the same, right? So if you're in a public park and you have a pack of CBD and you show them that, like they didn't even ask us, like straight up, they just completely ignored us because Delta 8, they have whole Delta 8 dispensaries. I went to a Delta 8 dispensary. I went to a Delta 8 lounge that was very similar to what we have in Oklahoma, except there was no Delta 9, right? It was all Delta 8, everything. But they could sell it in the in the actual lounge itself because, again, it's, it's not regulated there currently. It's about to be, but it's not currently regulated. So, um, you know, the, uh, parts of Texas, not all of Texas, but parts of Texas are extremely progressive and you would never know that you're in texas you think you're in california or oregon other than the fact that it's d8 instead of d9 yeah i mean here in the north dallas north dfw area a very progressive streak um particularly the town that i live in it's a college town cops here they just that's something they deal with every day i feel pretty safe as a consumer you know going around town doing my business it's just, you know, it's, it's, I would say it's where Arizona was 2005, 2006, like before the medical scene really took off and representation had some momentum. I mean, it's, it's right at the cusp here. Just need some brave legislator to put up some, some kind of bill or proposal and, and we're off to the races. Oregon cops for several years when well it's now it's legal but when it was just medical 
you are allowed to have on your person, meaning in a sitting on the front seat if you wanted a pound and a half, 24 ounces. But let's say you had 32, two pounds. Well, you'd only they'd only charge you with the eight ounces that you were over your limit or whatever, you know. Yeah, you could walk down the street with it in your backpack. I mean, it was completely, you know, that's Portland left of center to say the People's Republic of Oregon. <laughs> I, moved, I moved to Portland, like um, going to see a show and this was 2006. I went to go see a show and um, me and my buddies were so stoked. We just lit up a joint right down in the, <clears throat> the, China, the international district downtown. And, um, or I did, you know, and and then two cops walked right past me. My buddies just like all got solid stiff and I had no idea, you know, and they did and these two cops just parted ways and walked right around me smoking my doobie. And like literally all four of us moved to Portland within two months. We're just like, fuck, this is we're moving there. Duh. My story is almost identical. <laughs> I was we, we came up here on vacation and I'm uh, downtown Portland. And it's evening right there in front of Portland State University. And there's a young gentleman with a trench coat on and a, because it's raining, you know, obviously. And uh, he's waiting for the bus and he pulls out a bong and takes a hit and then put it back in his jacket. And we went home and uh, we were moving to Oregon. You know, I thought, yeah, this is pretty cool. That's 33 years ago. So, uh, you know. Yeah, it's, it's always been, uh, we have a long history. We voted on, it was made uh, semi-legal in 71. So we've got 50 years of uh, tolerance at least. When they uh, made it a violation of the law, uh, it wasn't a misdemeanor or a felony if you had 28 grams or less. Steve's giving me hell for traveling with the with the dope. I, I often travel travel with the weed in my in my uh, possession. We had a we had an interesting time in an interesting place. Where were we? Remind me exactly. What's that? Where were we exactly? I I, I dude I oh. I travel with like a quarter, close to a quarter pound on so me we almost were, every time I go. Okay. Allegedly, we were we were writing this book in the story, and uh, we were going from the west coast to the east coast uh, on this this tour that was happening in the book, and uh, and and <laughs> there happened to have somehow have gotten to be an ounce of, of flour that ended up there, and we're in a. I don't even know if I even want to say where it was, but I think we were, we were, we were, we were in one of the most highly trafficked airports on the planet. How about that? In, in one of the biggest bars and one of the most highly trafficked airports on the entire planet in this book. And, uh, and jo both of us were so used to being around it for such a long time. He's like, yo, check this out and cracks the jar and instantly like the whole terminal smells like this ounce jar and we instant and we're, we're looking at it and then we both dawns on us like what just happened and then we immediately leave like 50 bucks for like a 20 dollar bill close the jar and just get the fuck up out of there. 
<laughs> that, that guy became my friend because I went I went back a few times after that, and uh, he he the the bartender became my friend. It was pretty funny. Yeah, that was a. Uh... Definitely one of the, the closer calls I think I probably accidentally had, allegedly. I had, well, a, um, I had them find a, a jar or a whole joint bag one time at uh, going into Canada and the Canadian lady is like, make sure you smoke all this weed before you go through that side. They get really mad. And she throws the bag back in the car and tells us to have a good trip. You know, because it was just enough to tell what was in the bag. Like, it wasn't even enough to really smoke to get high. But that was really funny. When I had a high-pressure oil switch, I used to drive a 77 Nova. And my high-pressure oil switch cracked in my Nova. So it was shooting oil against the hot hood of the car and, and then hitting the en hot engine block. So when I pulled, but it cracked right as I slowed down to, to hit the, um, the, the, you know, border uh, check. So the first thing the border patrol thought was this stupid fucking kid's hiding shit in his engine block, right? Like, I'm sure that's exactly what they're thinking is that whatever this stupid kid put on his engine block is cooking off, right? Like, I'm sure that's exactly what their thoughts were because there's smoke pouring out of the front of the car as I pull up the thing. So that the cop tells me to stop the car and keep my hands on the wheel. And he pulls the hood up and it's an old Nova, right? So you can reach underneath the, the front bumper and the hood release is there. He doesn't need my help, right? So he can release the hood. So he lifts the hood up and immediately gets hit, hit with a hot jet of, of motor oil, which is spraying out of the, the high pressure oil switch. So he uh, immediately starts screaming, right? Because he just got hit with like, you know, 180 degree fucking motor oil. So one of the other border guards hears him scream, hits the panic button, and we have to get out hands on the back of our head, guns drawn by the whole border. They seal the border temporarily and, you know, the whole fucking nine, right? They order us into separate rooms. They hold us for two hours. And then the head border patrol comes in and he goes, sir, we'd like to apologize on behalf of the Canadian border patrol. There was a gross misunderstanding as to the severity of the situation. Uh, you're free to go. Your car's been towed to Montreal. Uh, and man, I, that's the, the, the scariest time I've ever had with like the border patrol because like they were really angry that that guy was fucked up and you know, it, we didn't do anything to hurt the poor guy. You know, we didn't mean to hurt him in any way. Uh, he's the one that lifted the hood, right? Like I didn't even know what was wrong with my car yet. So that was really fun. <laughs> but uh, I've had all kinds of fun times. I had many other ones in, uh, beyond that in airports, but um, those are some of the more fun ones that I've gotten into. Hey y'all, um, I gotta, I gotta peace out. Um, I, I wish I could stick around right now, but I, I gotta peace out. So, um, really good to talk to y'all, every everybody on the panel. Um, super stoked to connect with everybody. So, good have a good you. night, everybody. Thanks. Have a good night, Dutch Blues. But uh, but yeah, I've had all all different types of instances with the uh, with them. But usually the police are pretty cool, like. Unless you're a prick or go out of the way your, your way to like really be a thorn in their side, they're generally not huge dicks. I can't say you know, completely, but the few times I've had to deal with them in uncomfortable circumstances, as long as I didn't mouth off like an idiot, I've, I've managed pretty well. <laughs> I would agree. I've been really fortunate with my interactions with law enforcement, particularly while holding. Just be polite, give them what they want. It's problems. And usually 
if you're not a prick, yeah, like you said, usually you might have on the right side of the equation. Heavy so nerd. Strains, uh, what are the what is everyone's current kind of breeding program or breeding direction in terms of? Um, it seems like a lot of people are kind of breeding for more terpenes, not really focused on on total cannabinoids anymore, and then breeding for specific terpene profiles. Um, what are you guys all working on? You know this this growth season. I have a lot of projects, so I don't know if you want me to go first. Um, but if nobody else is going to play, then I'll play. Um, I have it. I have two different two different uh, sets of projects, and I don't like to to intermingle them. Uh, one is the so based on that picture I shared a little while ago, we have we have these modern varieties with these limited expressions and. I like to keep all of that stuff together, but I've also put a lot of effort into gathering landrace heirlooms that are the other end of that picture. And I want to do breeding projects that keep all of those together. So within the, the more modern side of things, um, what I've found to be really effective are Bubba Kush and associated relatives anything chocolate caramel mocha coffee soil um in in their aromatic presence so i'm working on combining uh pre-98 bubba kush uh, hollywood pure kush and then a couple other old school clone onlys with uh, a, a Northern Lights line I was gifted, and then I was gifted some some root beer backcross three from Mean Gene from Mendo. So those are going to be my my pollen donors. Uh, probably going to use the Northern Lights more than the root beer, just for a stability thing. But I, I want to get into exploring and expanding the the coffee chocolate caramel mocha sort of expressions because it, it feels like a lot of what's available now is very very much fruit centered or florally centered um and i want to kind of do something more original um outside of that whole cluster of projects and crosses and the mishmash with the the land races or the heirlooms, however you want to look at it, um, I've gathered. Let's see. There's a Vietnamese, a Thai, Nigerian, Angola, two Nepalese lines, two Manipuri lines, which is Himalayan India stuff, um, and then a handful of of Afghani and Pakistani lines, some, some bulky, the four Balochistans offered through the Indian land race exchange last year. Um, so I want to make sativa, sativa hybrids, sativa, 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 three-way crosses, sativa indica crosses, um, using those different land races to pull out different, different genetic combinations that, 
can just kind of open up the the spectrum of what's available to to build from for myself like um i look at some of the older established lines like like dj short started his whole journey with basically three different land races he had a a tie and afghani and a maybe it was another tie I, th I thought there was three i can't remember the third one right now but he's got 40 years worth of work 30 years worth of work just on those couple so i've got probably three or four times that i've got more work than i know what to do with um so that's that's go ahead uh, I've never had Nepalese flowers, but I have had Nepalese temple fall hash, and uh, it was um, really devastating. And it's one of the world's few, it, well, it's not few, but there aren't as many sativa hashes as there are, obviously, the uh, stuff from Afghanistan. And then the other one, um, you know, your use of uh, Northern Light Vibes is a good idea because it's been around for... Dude, I wanted to ask you something on that before you switch to the other strain. Do you think there's anything from the planting in the fall? Because in the Himalayas, they do a lot of fall planting and it sprouts in the spring. Do you think that there's something about that super long exposure to microbes or something that, that's allowing it to get a, a, a different expression? Or I'm just thinking out loud. I can't speak to uh, cannabis, obviously, but I can look at a uh, have you look at a commercial crop. You've seen the term winter wheat. That's because it's planted in the late fall. It winter overwinters, so it produces more gluten. That horrible thing that's going to you know eradicate the human race or something. Um, so that's the one preferred by bread makers because it gives you more structure in your breads, uh, those big holes that we like. Uh, so it works, in, not works, but that's the, that's the difference between uh, winter wheat and summer wheat. And summer wheat is planted in the spring and it grows more plump. So it's more, uh, it doesn't have the bread making ability. So it's what they call white wheat. And that's what we sell to Asia because they don't use it for bread. They use it for batters and you know they don't need something that rises that's not part of their uh, food culture but and yeah i think it must have something because if i were going to study it I'd, I'd be looking at the wheat uh sector to find out the ins and outs of why it's done so what it does show to me though is how resilient plants are if you keep humans out of it you know with their opinions and i think and who cares what you think what do you know you know, I mean, come on. Uh, so, you know, there's some, obviously this has been worked out. Well, here, I'll give me, here's my analogy because everybody likes beer, right? So in the 1500s, there was a German uh, prince who became king or something like William IV. And he passed, got the law approved that beer could only be made with three things, water, hops, and barley. That's it period. Now today, you can go get apricots and blueberries and I mean, what the fuck? So I guess what I would say is, what do you want to drink? Do you want to drink a traditional beer or a pot drink? There you go. 
Imagine the hangover from drinking blueberry beer. But also the, the one, the tie that I used is exactly the same district that DJ Short, uh, his seeds came from. And then the one of the seeds that I got from a broker who worked uh, with seeds from the Brotherhood in the South and came up to Northwest and sold them like, this is like 87, no, no, 86. Anyway, you get that idea, it's about, you know, 35 years ago. It was called Velvet Rush. And it was a branch from the tie. It didn't work out. And so this person from Laguna Beach got the seeds and then that's how I got them. And so I, I sent them to uh, Hawaii along with cuts of the TO to have the breeding done there because Oregon's not the best place to do seeds outdoors. And so they were done out in the Hawaiian sun and uh, they came out real nice. That's the Agnes cut. So the Agnes cut is the TO, that's a clone only plant and then crossed with uh, the Velvet Rush uh, male. No big deal. So it's really Thai and it's really, it's like, you know, really puts your head, your brain goes spinning around. This isn't like, it's not good for parties or, I mean, I can't even imagine going to a party and smoking this stuff. I mean, at least the parties I've been to are pretty freaky. You know, people get pretty freaky when they drink, so, or do drugs they shouldn't be doing or something, you know. It's not that, it's like listening to music or reading or a painting or going for a hike, you know, something like that. I'm not sure sitting in a bar and going out in the car every couple of hours and smoking a doobie is, uh, who knows, you know, none of my business. I just grow one, I don't wanna do any breeding. I mean, I'm gonna be breeding, but it's gonna be a repeat. Uh, a Hawaiian uh, male from an old friend, he's been growing since 75. And uh, he doesn't dick around with, you know, silliness or yeah, maybe I'll cross it with a bubble gum or I don't know, uh, mothballs or something. I don't know. Whatever, whatever the, the latest thing is. So, um, yeah, you get, but I got a 12 by 12 room I can use. It's already got 220. Nice. Maybe I can hire, a, you know, a consultant to come in and see if, uh, you know, I'm missing anything, you know, set it up. Oh. You know. <laughs> so potent since you since you asked the question what are you what are you working on over there anything working on my african cuts I, i'm waiting on we're wow. supposed to move in april and then we've kind of had a comedic se series of errors on bids and trying to close on properties so we're kind of waiting until we get moved and then that'll be you know step one and they're currently just working on a bunch of um, so I, I make a lot of edible products and beverages and stuff. So we're kind of switching from winter to, to summer. So making teas and lemonades, uh, switching more into coffees and creamers and all that stuff. Um, so working on that and then um, working on some secret projects that I can't talk about at the moment. And then also working on some two really cool projects, which is one converting pig houses uh, uh, into aquaponic facilities by reskinning them 
and then converting the sl the waste sloughs into fish tanks, concrete fish tanks, which is super awesome. Like it, it, it really is super plug and play in terms of um, uh, retrofitting them. So I think it'll be super cool in order to um, uh, uh, to do that. Um, and then um, uh, also working on chicken houses as well. So I kind of have two different customers, one's chicken houses and one's pig houses. So kind of working on conversions on that. And I think once we get that done, it'll be super cool to kind of fit for both vegetables and cannabis. Uh, it'll be a really cool kind of scenario for for both of those um, things because it's kind of neat to see the organic or generative side of being able to kind of predatorily prey on industrial farm properties that are going uh, going under, right? Like when have we been in control, right? Like I feel like we're kind of, uh, if I can figure that out, uh, there's a lot of farms that have those types of facilities that we can retrofit and you know convert into highly productive facilities. Not to mention use those same tanks to irrigate field crops, right? They have spacing in between those buildings. We can grow outdoor there. We can grow vegetables or cannabis or hemp or whatever. So it'll be a lot of fun. We're working on a lettuce program this year. That's cool. I know. I know. It's nothing special. I'm but... going to start breeding a, a line of kale actually pretty soon. Ooh, very I'm interesting. Into, I'm into breeding all kinds of plants, not just cannabis. The other one that's, I'm real. So one of my idols um, is Luther Burbank. And in his lifetime, he made over 800 varieties of, of vegetables and fruits and the one that made great education right 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 the the one that that's always astounded me is the white blackberry it's a blackberry where the berries are completely white um and i have so before i got injured before i got into growing i was just a smoker um and when i was just a smoker i spent seven years trying to perfect crafting wines and meads in that journey i spent a lot of time working with blackberries raspberries and and blueberries um and when i started to read about luther burbank so i started with wine and then i wanted to be able to grow the things i was making wine with and then i wanted to be able to keep the bees i was making mead with i, I was I've always been this kind of holistic um, character. And I, I got introduced to Luther Burbank when I was looking into how to, how to cultivate these things in a more natural type setting. And I was looking at breeding and I was looking at how, how can I leave something behind that's kind of my, my mark. And I seen his white blackberry and I, I just got, I got bit by the bug, man. So I've got what's called a thimbleberry, a salmonberry, and then I have a blackberry, I have a red raspberry and a gold raspberry, and they all belong to the genus called Rubus. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the salmonberry and the thimbleberry are just native to the Northwest. Um, salmonberry grows 10, 12, 15 feet tall and has berries as uh, big as a golf ball that start off yellow and ripen to this deep, beautiful red color. And so I wanted to love them. They do, they absolutely love them and they're delicious. They make great jams, yeah. juices. Um, I wanna take salmonberry genetics and cross it into 
I'm not really sure yet. I probably a handful of things and see what kind of crosses come out and see if I can make my own berry types. Um, that's not a Logan berry or a Marion berry that is basically just a cross of a raspberry and a blackberry or two different blackberries or uh, I want to step outside that box and bring in salmon berries and thimble berries and kind of diversify rubus a little bit and see what I can find. I, I have no idea where it's going to go. I just, I'm keeping my mind open and I know I want to do it. So I'm really excited outside of the cannabis world to get into to breeding some of those fruits. Uh, I'd also like to get into working with some apple varieties, ciders and um, pears, pears, pear cider. I want to, I want to try to find some of the older varieties of apples we used to make cider from that aren't really good for eating, but I want to grow those trees, harvest the fruit and grow the seed to see what I can find. Um, they're kind of lifelong projects, but super passionate about that stuff. Now. <clears throat> Clackamas Community College funded in part uh, an ongoing project of getting cuts from trees on the original landowners and the Europeans in Oregon in the valley. And last I heard it was something like 3,500. And so they grafted them onto rootstock, like that's how they're grown now. And it's amazing the project. And so if you were to contact Clackamas Community College, you'd have to, I don't, I just know about the project, but I wasn't involved or anything. But man, what a resource. I mean, they've got stuff that came with, because that's what humans do. They bring their plants with them when they relocate. That's the history of the human race. So you can imagine all the trees out of Ohio and probably some that Johnny Appleseed may have planted. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. And this part of the world, west of the Cascades, between that and the Pacific Ocean, it's pretty much perfect weather for that type of berry, the cane, the cane berries like you're talking about. And I don't, I only live about 20 miles from the big Willamette Valley production area, Marion berries being the, yeah, the, uh, it's Marion County. What else are you going to do, right? So, anyway, I just remembered a, a third one that I, I somehow I blanked out. Um, up here in the Puget Sound. So World War II came along and America had a big problem with the, uh, the Japanese population for whatever reason and we put them in internment camps. And one of the internment camps in the Pacific Northwest was on an island called Vashon Island. Um, just so happens my great grandmother lived on Vashon Island and after, so while World War II was happening and these people were stuck on this island, to make ends meet, they grew strawberries. And they grew strawberries that they, as the story goes, I don't know how, how accurate it is, but as the story goes, they grew strawberries that they had brought with them from Japan. And World War II ended and the Japanese the Japanese were freed, they were allowed to disperse again back into normal society. And some of the, the strawberries got left behind. I do believe that my great grandmother, when she moved onto the property that she lived on, it had strawberries on it. 
they're not woodland strawberries. They're not the other strawberries native to the to this area because I've I've also found those. Um, these are these are different, and I believe they're descendant of the strawberries from the Japanese that were stuck in the internment camp. So um, I was lucky enough to be given propagations of these strawberries from my great grandmother before she passed away. So she was 95 and she only died a handful of years ago. So she'd been on, she'd been on the Island basically most of her life. Um, and I'm fairly certain that the, the berries that I have outside are, are descendant of, or related to those, those same berries. So I would love to, um, I'm going to harvest some of the berries this year and I've seen methods where you can scrape the outside of the, the skin of the berry off, dry it on a paper towel, and then the, the seeds will actually come clean once the, the fruit flesh has dried. So I want to harvest some of those seeds, sprout some of those berries and just see what lies in the, the genetic potential of these berries because they're not the woodland berry. They're not the other berries that are around here. So I, I really want to to delve into that before those genetics become lost. I don't know how many other people have that berry and they're, they're delicious, dude. They only get so big and they have a flavor that you can't find in, in nature or in the supermarket these days. If you can get a hold of uh, Alpine berries, they come in uh, yellow and uh, red and they're about the size of your little finger fingernail. And the, they're so intense and they're grown commercially to make flavor agents for food manufacturers. And you're not gonna get a big yield, but man, oh man, just having a jar of jam made from alpine berries is something that's a special deal. So if you like growing strawberries, that's one to get to. And not, just a, not difficult. Just a few years ago, they tried to release a a pine berry that was basically a, a white strawberry, but if it gets too much sun, it, I think it turns pink. Uh, but that was kind of fascinating too. So yeah, I'm, I should look into the alpines and see if I can cross the alpines into this, this berry that I have, that'd be interesting. It, that would be a heck of a project. I mean, not difficult, but a wonderful thing to get involved in. Because imagine if you could get something that made sense for the home and container garden. That strawberry, that kind of strawberry does really well in the those the Mexican uh, strawberry pots that have the pockets that come out on the sides. Those are also good for culinary herbs to have a right on your patio, do one of those pots and have eight or nine of your favorite herbs growing pretty cool and you just go out with your scissors when you're cooking and need to get thyme or marjoram or whatever you know, your deal is. My, my grandpa had a really cool setup when I was young. I He had a pool and on the pool side he had a wine barrel and then he drilled holes in the wine barrel. It's basically one of those terracottas but then he it yeah. was strawberries in the top of it and coming out the sides and yeah. in the middle of summer man you couldn't even see the barrel it was so covered in strawberries it was cool. Yeah. Hey guys, I got to take off. I just want to say thanks for having me on for a bit. It was good to see you again, Cascadian. Potent Ponics, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Uh, yeah, Uncle Jim, take care, be safe. 
And yeah, see you guys next time. Good evening. Bye. Good seeing you again. Thanks for coming on. You know, really, uh, Cascadia is the tallest. It's a pretty kick-ass area for gardeners. You've got incredible soil, really mild weather for the most part. Um, a little rainy, but you know, that's why it's green. You know, it doesn't it's, look yeah, like Arizona or Nevada or something. It's better than the alternative lately, which is fire. So I'll take the rain. Yeah, I'm all right with it. So I will say this, the first year we moved here is 88. We got here in June and that summer had been the mildest summer like in 50 years, you know, one of those things. So I thought, man, this Oregon really kicks ass, man. And it started raining October 1st. And the next day without any measurable rain wasn't until the third week of January. And I'm coming from Southern California, the beach area. And I thought, just, I don't know about this, man. A lot of friggin' rain, man. Just goes, it never ends. You know, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, when I, I, I came from the east side of the Cascades, I spent the first portions all the way basically to puberty um, on the eastern foothills of the Cascades. Oh, okay. Whereas, it's beautiful it, country. Yeah. It, but it gets dry, man. I mean, yeah. April, May, the brown, the soil goes brown, the grasses die off, and you don't see moisture till yeah. November. It's and we came over this way. Desert. Yeah, yeah, we came this way, and it started raining in October. It didn't stop till March, and I was like, "Mom, what did you do to us?" When you get a boat, like I didn't even have to look outside. It was just grab your coat, weather. You didn't even think about it. So it's been interesting in the the 20 years 25 years i've 20 years i've been here that um i've watched i've watched it change you know there's there's not rain like there was um and, and not to say that you know it's all global warming because some of this is a is a cyclical pattern of, of drying and and hydration wetting but um i'm i'm still young enough that i don't know the pattern yet so it's it's been a it's been a ride watching it dry out, and I'm I'm curious to see if it starts to swing back the other way, and and how old I am when it goes back to you know six months of wet again. Um, One thing to keep in mind that records have only been kept since the 19th century, and the Northwest we were still just chopping wood. There wasn't any much of a reason. Oh yeah, it rained in Oregon a lot. So really, we didn't start getting some accurate records until like 1890s, you know, whereas the East, you know, you get the idea. And, uh, but beyond that, just looking at, at tree rings and, and studying that uh, to get a history, um, it's cyclic within centuries. I mean, there's just a whole lot of forces uh, the most rain I've ever seen in my life, though, was it was either 90 or 91, maybe. My God. I mean, I thought his state's going to float away and every river was over its banks and 
you know, who planned this thing? And of course, everything goes to the ocean. That's where what rivers do. And so if you're west of the Cascades and you live anywhere near a stream or a river, it's going to get big in the wintertime, snow melt, and then rainfall rain will obviously increase the rate of removing the snow level. So, I mean, it's just, it's a, uh, it gets become real cyclic, but it's been going on for, God, if you want to study something interesting, study the geological and weather history of the Northwest going back about even a hundred thousand years. It's pretty remarkable. Those big rocks in the ocean, you know what those are? Those are basalt pieces from basalt uh, lava flows that were right on the coast. And, you know, it was pretty rough here um, for animals and <clears throat> yeah I, I grew up traveling through the the Columbia Basin and then yeah there you go and yeah. you can you can drive you know you drive along the Columbia River and you look up and you can it, it shows you where the water line was it, it's yeah. it, oh man it's fascinating stuff around here some of the and there's so many microclimates between yeah. the Canadian border and the redwoods, really, uh, the redwoods of Northern California. Uh, well, even on the coast in Southern Oregon, Gold Beach, that area, uh, Brookings, they call it the banana belt. And uh, pretty isolated though, population is you know, almost a nothing, but beautiful, uh, beautiful place to live. A lot of whitewater rafting, but they'll be on average, you know, eight, nine, 10 degrees warmer than it is here in Portland. For, you know, for the most part. So, uh, but you're like two and a half hour drive to get to a hospital. So oh, they, don't get, they don't get a lot of retirees, you know what I mean? I mean, if, if you live there and you got a, you had a cardiac arrest, uh, basically you might get a text from the hospital Hey, sorry to hear what happened. Best wishes, you know. I mean, that's about the only. Uh, you're not going to see. You're not going to see a cardiac specialist or whatever. Sometimes those are the the fun places to live, though. I know. No, I. You know, I had to go to the hospital last no uh, August. And uh, yeah, I, I learned a lot about medical care. Man, if you got Medicare and they know that, you know, you got a supplemental insurance. I mean, I was in there 36 hours, 36 and no surgery. Total bill was just under 18, $18,000. I mean, it's fucking delusional. Wow. Yeah, but think about how well lubricated, lubricated and stretched all of your orifices are now. Oh, it's just, you know, yeah, I know it. Hey, I have diabetes. I didn't take care of myself. You know, I need to do a better job. I get it. You know, I don't want to get lectured by a cardiac specialist and an internist and, a, you know, just, and they're all wanting a piece of it, you know, well, you need to go see the specialist and, you know, blah, 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 this and uh, American public's getting fucked on this insurance thing. I promise you. 
Yeah, I just realized lately that the dentists uh, and they have the same racket. You know, they they send you to the dentist for tooth cleaning, and then they send you to. Uh, they got like three different options based on if you need like a crown or a root canal or a tooth pulled or. They send everything's, you to... a, everything's a specialist. Everything. You know. With the God with the associated markup. Yeah. Imagine if the cannabis industry was like that. No, I I'm a spider mite specialist. No, I'm a powdery mildew specialist. No, I'm a I'm a cocoa specialist. I'm a I'm a canna part A specialist. I'm a canna part B specialist. Like, you know, it just this is ridiculous shit. And these people have medicine. You know, this is ridiculous. I always laugh at the position. Not the person. Everyone's got to work, right? Tell me in God's name, especially you, Cassadian, since you've been studying genetics, and especially in the area of cannabis. Pardon my French, but what in God's name does a bud tender bring to the party? Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to defend them on this. I, I want to defend them on this. Okay, so... The bud tender is the portal between the customer and the product and mm -hmm. a good, a, a good bud tender. So, okay. So a good dispensary has uh, all of their terpene and cannabinoid profile data uh, on all of their different products as much as they're able to from the COAs that their products give them. Right. And then you use that to, to be a better salesperson. Right. So you build, you use that to build a profile on your customers. So if a, a customer gravitates towards towards certain terpenes and their concentrates and their flower. Okay, I can say, okay, well, I don't have any of the strains that you, you purchased previously, but I have stuff that fits that same uh, cannabinoid profile or, or chemovar profile, I'm sorry. Um, so uh, that allows you to be a much better salesperson, but also provide better relief to people that are actually going through medical problems. You know, if you are a medical dispensary, you're going to actually be able to provide a much better, better medical service for your customers than you would if you didn't have access to those types of data. And that's something I, I, that I've seen good dispensaries do. And um, when I worked for one of the groups in, in Colorado, uh, they would actually look at that when people scan their ID in, when their name got called, they would look at that and then pull flour off the shelf to make sure that was ready for you when you walk through that door, right? That's a good dispensary that provides good medicine and, and good service. That's kind of what the, the upper end of what our, our, our industry should be doing. And I think that not only that, but okay, a lot of people don't know what an acceptable first dosage is. A lot of people have to be educated on that. that they're the point of education on that. Also, hey, you, you might have a, a, an allergy to a certain terpene, or maybe maybe you need to stick uh, stay away from concentrates because you seem to have a, a pretty negative uh, experience or edibles or, or whatever, you know. So everyone has their thing that they just doesn't quite jam with them, right? Like we all have our own, our own thing that works for us and doesn't work for us. Um, so helping people realize and, and find that. And then also someone's going to show them a couple of different terpene profiles. It's going to allow them to better analyze and figure out what it is that they might need, you know, talking to them about why are they there in the dispensary? What type of relief are they trying to get? And then navigating them and steering them towards uh, chemover profiles that can actually help uh, accomplish that goal. I think that they're, they're some of the most underrated people. And not only that, but 
if you're a, a company and you want to really get your brand out there, what you do is you throw bud tender parties. So you do these private invite only things. You go in, you hand them in, in person, you go into the dispensary when you go to do your normal deliveries and you hand them the bud tender uh, invites, right? And you have a private party, you, you throw just for them, you have food, you have drinks, you have a DJ, you educate them on your product, you give them a bunch of merch, t-shirts, whatever, you brand the shit out of those people, <laughs> basically with, with your stuff. Uh, you give them a good time, you educate them about your product so that they can properly represent you in a fun setting. If, if they're having a good time, they're going to remember that and the stuff that you taught them about your product, right? And then from there, then you can get them out into the world and, and actually help people find better products. And they're going to actually remember the shit that you told them. If I just go in there and tell them one time when I leave, they're not going to remember that. But if I schmooze them for an evening and then educate them on all the different products and they taste test them and, and, and can have that kind of in a private private setting, you're going to have a much better uh, uh, result, especially if we're trying to break into a larger market or really get into a larger city uh, and you're having issues with getting your name out there. Uh, you know, spending a little bit of money, spending half a pound or a pound and, and, a, and, a, and a fun evening in a cool private venue can be a great way to get that out there. Some of the some of the dispensaries around here. Uh, you work an eight-hour shift, they give you an eighth. So you get the opportunity to try something on the shelf without it costing you. Um, that's that's one of the things I feel like they're actually doing right, is they're giving the, the bud tender the opportunity to, to have that firsthand experience uh, without it taking taking away from their paycheck. What I wish the, the industry would start to do is quit marginalizing herbalism and that's that's the point where an herbalist would really benefit this whole so, paradigm is so i think the i think the fear is because i'm super into herbalism the fear is is that there's going to be a, an interaction between either cannabinoids or terpenes and an xyz herb or a medication that then then gets immediately applied to cannabis and says ah oh, cannabis see this causes people to to this does call, kill people or you know or this does whatever 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 um, that's the fear, right? Right now, we don't have any links ever in the history of the planet ever linked back to our plant that we all love, right? We're trying to, to maintain that. I think that's what people are afraid of. So um, I, I have worked on a bunch of different cross uh, herbal uh, products and I'm super for them, especially for Caesar treatment. I think that can be kind of a breakthrough. I think you can synergistically use them with other herbs for treating seizures specifically uh, I know one of the trial products we're working with right now has an average response time of 46 seconds for most seizure patients, right? There's not a single prescription drug that can do that. Is that sublingual? Yes. That's so um, so um, th there's nothing on the market that can work that fast and, and repeatedly, right? Across multiple different patients with different types of seizures and other types of things. So that's something that we're working on trying to get more and more information on and then work on you know, maybe we can even improve it further if we, if we combine it with other things, who knows, right? Like it, it, it needs more work, right? But it's, it's a start. So there's definitely something that I think that uh, people need to, um, uh, to think about and, and I'm heavily, heavily in support, especially all as well, now that we're seeing more and more uh, mushroom extractions, looking at triterpenes, not just from psychedelic mushrooms, but from non-psychedelic mushrooms in combination with cannabinoid uh, uh, therapies, 
four different medical treatments, I think is also gonna be a whole separate breakthrough uh, as people further document those uh, broadly, right? Like I think that that's a whole separate area of medicine that's just kind of a blank slate right now that has very little research that's documented in terms of syner synergy. So that's another area that super excites me as well as certain microbes seem to stimulate responses and, and other things as well. But um, uh, just to, to further support what you're saying on the herb stuff, I just think that that's why people are afraid of getting stuff into the, the, the market. A lot of states won't let you do that. In fact, Florida won't even let you have anything that's not cannabis, uh, sativa or cannabis, indica or cannabis ruderalis within a grow room. You can't even have banker plants or bait plants or or, or uh, cover crop, none of that. All that's illegal in, in Florida. So, you know, we need to work on changing some of these, you know, ridiculous laws that are that restrictive. But, um, and, and explain to them why, you know, it's preventing diversity that's going to help defend those plants against uh, things without needing sprays. You know, if a plant is highly exposed to lots of mycorrhizal fungi, it's going to have a better defense against fungal pathogens that might be in the air, right? So it doesn't need to have as much sprays or any sprays at all if it has that kind of baseline from the, from the roots. And we've proven that over and over with aquaponics, with the dual root zone and side-by-sides and all that kind of stuff, that having that mycorrhizal and fungal layer and stimuli on the root system versus not having it makes an enormous impact, especially on fungal resistance uh, in particular. My, my particular specialization in herbalism tends to deal with pain and inflammation. And that's, that's like, that's up there with, with seizures and in how powerful I think herbal combinations mixed in with cannabis can actually like produce profound effects. Um, so I just wanted to throw that in there. That's, that's where my angle is in, in herbalism. I'm, I'm all about, cause I suffer from pain and inflammation. That's how I got into cannabis. That's how I got into growing. That's how I that's what I've just decided to specialize with my herbalism. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to start to develop products that, that bring the herbal world and the cannabis world together with pain and inflammation, particularly in mind, even though there are many, many, many applications as far as digestion, seizures, uh, uh, there's a whole laundry list. Uh, the, the unfortunate part for like a blood tender to return to the, the topic here is the for somebody like me to consider to go be a bud tender, the, the knowledge that I have doesn't match the pay they're going to give me. Um, it's not, it's not even, it's not even close. Like, so it, it's unfortunate that the situation is what the situation is because the people that are most manicured for that position will not, accept that pay and there needs there needs to be a correction there because the amount of teaching that could go on from a bud tender to a client customer patient whatever you want to call them um it could be tenfold if they afforded the right person on the other side of the counter um and it, also, it, also remember that they're the gatekeeper of your product too like if you make really good friends with those Bud tenders, they're going to move the crap out of your product, which means that they're going to buy more on a more regular basis, which, you know, that, that for, you know, so, so that kind of also helps with, with what you're trying to achieve there. So, you know, that, that's the other, the angle of it. But one of the other things I always emphasize to people when they're like, okay, well, we want to do a dispensary as well. Where I always say, well, one of the things you have to have in your dispensary is a community space. You have to have an education space so that you can do seminars, you can do training, you can have 
yoga, you know, uh, uh, you know, weed friendly yoga or, and people can, you know, show up high and do yoga here and it's safe, you know, or, or whatever, like, like having that kind of community space or even donating to other people, or if there's a church that wants to have, or, you know, I'm personally not, you know, a religious person, but Hey, if you have another community group that just needs a place to meet, be that part of the community that has a space that allows them to meet. If there's a disaster, if there's some other thing, in fact, just in, in the, the last winter when we had the, the, the cold snap in Oklahoma and Texas, they, there was no homeless shelters anywhere else. There was multiple cannabis lounges in Oklahoma that opened up for the homeless people to give them a warm place to go. You'll see that uh, I, I always compare in my head, I don't ever, this is probably the first time I've ever mentioned it publicly, but I always compare my experience when I walk in a dispensary to my experience when I walk in a traditional apothecary. And when you walk into a traditional apothecary where they sell bulk herbs, where you can buy herbal medicine slash dietary supplements, depending on the hat that I have on at the moment, um, you will find a list of speakers, you will find a teaching space, you will find books, you will find places to sit and talk, you will find people lingering in an apothecary where a dispensary is more in and out. It's like, it's like leading cattle to slaughter. They just, they just lead them through and out the other end. And then, and we, we need a paradigm shift, um, but we need the laws to allow that paradigm shift because it, it will, increase the holistic nature of the whole system it's it's unfortunate that you can't combine a dispensary with an apothecary and offer that all as a package because that's that's really where i, I guess that's really where you start to scare the pants off physicians and doctors in the medical community because you can actually do real healing without having to go to the hospital so that's probably why you can't but from an herbalist's perspective that's that's what I feel like we need to get to is where we can have this sort of safe space like you're talking about and be able to have these conversations without fear and be able to include cannabis with other herbs and and talk about, you know, drug herb interactions and contraindications and be able to take in uh, clients and have that face to face meeting and be able to actually help people instead of just let me get you high, give me your money, get out of here. Bye. Um, there's there's one place that I know of. There's a place in Oklahoma City called Jer or just outside of Oklahoma City called Joe's Herb Shack, and he has both an apothecary and a dispensary, and he is incredibly knowledgeable on both halves of the coin, and it's a really super cool dude. And if anyone's up that way and you're looking for a good dispensary, he is definitely a great guy. He, I think he even has some of our product up there, uh, if memory serves me correctly. So. Uh, definitely check that out. Uh, super cool dude. Uh, really, really good guy up there. And um, uh, I also see him do a lot of educational stuff, a lot of educational posts online and things like that up in his area up in OKC. So, uh, you know, always good to see people like that uh, putting education out as well. Um, but um, uh, yeah, there, there is definitely not a whole lot of other, you know, people doing a lot of those combination, you know, type things. Yeah, I feel like as a community, we still have We've come so far, you know, uh, from from Coots era to where we are. We've come so far, but I feel like the path we should have been on and the path we're on, we have so much work left to do. Um, the 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 work is not done yet, you know. Even after legalization, even after all this starts to roll through, the it, we're really just getting started. We really have to keep fighting and have to keep working towards 
um, this better world we've all wanted for a couple generations now, it's, it, it, there's more progress to be made still. So I'll get off the soapbox, but. No, there is when you live in a country where your rights are defined by the state you live in. And one state you can receive the mayor's award, the key to the city because you had the most successful cannabis and not even a thousand miles away, three or four states where you could spend the rest of your life, you know, in, uh, in prison. And I, you know, I, I guess where I part from you gentlemen politely is I don't have the confidence in the uh, production that you do. And um, I'm jaded by what I've seen with the legal grows that I was unfortunately involved in when it started here three, four years, whatever it was. And, um, you know, I wasn't too upset when they didn't come back for the second year, return their licenses, reduced them, you know, uh, hey, you know, sometimes you roll the dice, you don't win. And, uh, that's been the attitude forever that, well, it's just a weed so anybody can grow it. Well, that's true. You can grow it. But to do it commercially and make money and, and make it consistent, that's the challenge. We could argue for eternity and what the best way forward to do that. I don't think it is that anybody can hang the hat with the word greeter on the, on the cap with no background. I mean, try to talk about genetic inheritance. You're done. I mean, they want to tell, well, no, it's that Joe Michaels, uh, you know, Lemon Kush, and I don't give a shit. You know, no controlled environments. Are there breeders that do that? Yeah, but is that the majority? No. I mean, just the people that have ripped me off, and all of a sudden they're breeders. Fuck. When I gave them the seeds, they didn't have a pot to piss in or when it'll throw it out of, you know? And most so, of them still don't. <laughs> right, they don't, you know, and I'm glad I live in a state where I'm allowed to grow my own plants with no government involvement at all and uh, didn't tell me how big they could be. So four plants, you know, if you know what you're doing, that's a lot of weed. I mean, at least five pounds. Say you're doing 600-gallon pots with a real soil and not bags of, you know, ocean forest or roots organic. I don't care which flavor or my favorite one to rag on is that goddamn baby boo from Malibu. Fuck. I mean, I know the guy that actually did the formula on that soil. And uh, I'll leave it at that. I trained his nephew how to grow behind his back. He wrote me and goes, can you help me? And I said, yeah, sure. I said, whatever your uncle said, disregard it. We're going to start from square one. So, you know, I just made a soil. You know, it's no big deal. I'm mixing the soil. It's been turned into this weird thing. Like, this is a big deal. Fuck. But, was you know, I still believe strongly, and I, I'm wrong. I'm okay with that, too. You guys are right. I'm wrong. I get it. But there's something nice about growing your own vegetables and flowers, including cannabis. 
I think that it enriches your life and your uh, perception of, uh, you know, spirituality and, and life in general. That's what I believe. Oh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say you're wrong. Made, you, I got to grow it. You know, I can't buy it. Yeah, I wouldn't say you're wrong at all. Oh, yeah. I, I've definitely found a deeper connection with nature in general, more compassion, more more passion for life, period. Um, compassion and passion, obviously being two different things. But I, my relationship with plants has made me a better person. And my yeah. relationship with growing my own herbs and growing my own cannabis and growing my own food has enriched my life to a magnitude I, I can't put a number on. Uh, so I, I would be the last one to say that you're wrong. Um, but generation got it wrong you know it's like we stepped over the homeless to get into the shop to get our rolex clean you know it's like can somebody drive me to the revolution my mercedes is in the shop you know i mean we lost our way yeah yeah and, and the return by people many born since 1980 had had nothing but economic turmoil in their life and so the return to taking some kind of control over whatever that might be, you know, crafts and, and things. And I, you know, I, I'm encouraged when I see that and, and farmers markets where people can go buy real food and take classes now online, how to make bread or, you know, just to get some sense of uh, control into your life. And I think cannabis can play a big role in that because then you know what you're getting. You know, you don't have to wonder, well, you know, Joe, the, the bud tenders, he tell me that, you know, I've been around so many scams in this thing. And hey, look, it's been a scam since I was 16, you know, 50 or 40, whatever it was, 54 years ago. You know, hey, guys with something that everybody else wants, you know, it's, hey. The most they're, not going, they're not going to, a, uh, you know, a divinity school to become a priest you know let's get real here and uh high time sold weed for years what with bud babes you know so now we do a t-shirts i don't know i i don't know i don't get it because like, we right. fought hard to make this legal some of us did some really crazy shit you know in the middle of the night and in the california desert you know with temporary landing fields and you know just crazy shit dealing with the pre-cartel guys that were crazy in their own way so you know Juan Valdez and his dog spot you know at, in Juarez you know at midnight or three in the morning that kind of shit so I don't know I hope you guys work it out uh but I'm just, I, you know, as it moves across the country, just think about it. There aren't enough good people who really know what, to, like you guys, that it's going to be able to, I mean, these clowns run around that have never grown a crop in their life, selling their services at a, as a consultant. That's laughable. You won't do a second job. Yeah, unfortunately, we're we're outnumbered for sure. But uh, you know, it's like 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 your era, you were you were outnumbered as well, but you still put up the fight. So my my nature is when my back's against the wall to start swinging. So I got fifty years of swinging left in me. Yep, 
it's uh yeah the assholes won you know i mean i've seen a lot of greenhouses in my life unrelated to cannabis and i know what a basic one costs and i know one that is this a hobby with you you know and then there was this stuff that was built here for the cannabis it's like you got a quarter million dollars in this greenhouse and you don't even know you don't even know how to clone well we just thought we'd buy them from the dispensary and i'm just thinking to myself man this got disaster written all over it no wonder you Show me a show me a grow that's like over you know two hundred square thousand square feet that's successful right now. All of them have fucked up royal. I mean, exactly. Canopy, Aurora. The list goes on and on and on. And these giant grows that have lost millions and millions of dollars in single runs because of mismanagement. I mean, I those are, you know everything from airplane exhaust because they didn't have the right HVAC in one case and and one of them. Another one where they double dose nutrients and fried, you know, what was it, 80,000 square feet of plants and a couple of other, like, just really stupid shit. Or you're just like, how the fuck, like, like really basic elementary shit. And you're like, how, how you spend this much money, you don't even have basic quality control and, and like procedures and SOPs and checklists. What the fuck? But it happens. I, I see it all the time. I get called to them all the time. I, I show you guys regularly disaster picks on this very podcast and video of, you know, all kinds of screwed up plants. That's just, that's heartbreaking, dude. That's, oh man. And it's not, it's not rocket science. I mean, I know that's a played out metaphor, but it's, it's a plant, dude. Like, here was my first experience with a so-called professional company. Oregon was the only state. I don't know what's happened since. I don't really care. But that time we were the only state that year that it, so a few went legal, right? That allowed outside money. So we had Asian banks, European banks, South American banks, the guys from Vancouver. I won't mention their name, but it has to do with a metal and a a sun catcher for trees but um they uh the price dropped 2400 a pound when when the, the cycle started that was their business model okay we'll get 2400 a pound and for a lot of reasons some not all their fault with smoke damage affecting the flavor of the medicine and uh, their, their weakest argument was uh, overproduction. That one cracked me up. Um, but that's the price dropped below $500. I mean, that's a huge hit. And you know, investors, they don't stick around. Well, let's try this again. They're off to a new scam. You know, hey, that was yesterday. I'm off doing solar powered uh, motorcycles or whatever, you know, you know over in... Uh, Pakistan, whatever, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's big business. I mean, some of the ones I've heard about in the East Coast, one owned by the Wrigley family, 
the whole thing is robotically controlled. I mean, like the gentleman that was here earlier, you know, with lettuce that's never touched by human hands. And, you know, that's what it's come to. And um, so I'm asking, I'm not criticizing, I'm asking, does that mean that that's how you can control the terps? That level of growing where it's just completely chemistry? That's a question. Because I know you can't do it in soil. And hydroponics, that's been proven to be a challenge to be commercially successful for just a number of reasons. Um, the law of minimums being the, the biggest culprit in the whole. I'm know, sorry, which, what was the crop? My, I cut out for a second. What was the, the species of plant? No, we, no, I'm I'm saying that, uh, and what hydroponics? No, no, no. Are you talking about a, a non-cannabis plant or cannabis? Oh, and that, no, I'm just saying that commercially, up in uh, 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 yeah, Vancouver, British Columbia, north of uh, Seattle, uh, years ago, the big companies out of Holland that invented this food production greenhouse paradigm. It's very, they're very selective about what they grow. They grow four plants and that's it. Um, you, you're not doing strawberries there. You're not doing uh, conventional. Well, strawberry. Well, okay, I, I'm with them on the strawberries. Strawberries is the brand name for spider mite starts that they sell at your local Lowe's. I think, I think the issue as it relates to cannabis, um, as far as getting a consistent expression, right. is the lack of true breeders um, and the, the polyhybrid mess that we've turned the cannabis genetics, modern cannabis genetics into uh, with, with something like uh, Tom Hill's done a really, he's done a really fantastic job. Something like his, uh, deep chunk. Right. I've never, I've, I've never heard of anybody growing deep chunk where they didn't get deep chunk when it was done. It's all the same profile. You cross deep chunk into somebody else's work and eventually you, you run that out enough filial generations and it turns back into deep chunk. Um, and I think that's really the core of the issue is we have a bunch of people that are not breeders held up on pedestals as breeders and we're making polyhybrid messes of a plant that we all say that we love, but we don't actually put the passion and the work in to solidify those, those chemotypes and those phenotypes. And we're just milking the system as a, as a breeder community. Um, I say we because I, I consider myself to be a breeder in training. I wouldn't say I'm a cannabis breeder, but like I've shared earlier, I have ambitions to breed all kinds of plants. Uh, I've done a little bit of homework on genetics, I've, you know, whatever, whatever. But I think that's really the heart of the issue when it comes to different growing paradigms, different environments, different people uh, being involved, different management styles is we don't have there's there's so much phenotypical variation in the genotypes that we're working with still that 
the expression is allowed to, to, to change so far based on what the environment is doing that we don't get consistent results, you know, from Washington to California to New York to yeah. Texas. Um, I think that's the heart of the problem. In your career, have you come across a, a Portland original called uh, Big Bud? I've heard of it, but I've never found it. Oh, well, don't. Don't grow it, okay? It did grow the largest buds other than Ruderalis. I mean, they were huge. But what a loser by any... And then remember, this was like late 80s. So the indoor thing was still in its infancy. Not that it ever got great. I'm just saying that it was really rude, crude, and rural, you know, black, I was in a uh, black, oh, it's still one today, black gold. Now it was owned by a, a father and son, and now it's owned by the same people that do sunshine mix, number five and 10 and six, and they got several names. They bought that to have a consumer line. And it's like the bottom of the barrel. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's just garbage. But that was the soil of choice because it was this will make it really like black gold, man. And um, that was in the pre Fox uh, Farm Motion Forest days. But in any event, um, that strain, everybody wanted to grow it because you got big yields. And the fact you had any kind of weed at all that was Spencermia, it had to be good, right? And they sold the shit out of it in the black market. But it didn't take too long, but people wanted to breed with it because they could take a, what they considered to be a good real world strain, you know, from wherever and cross with Big Bud and end up with something that was huge. As things turned out, the Big Bud was really dominant. And I don't know any of the story, the history. I just know that I grew up once and that's all it took, you know. So it's like the Portland version of Canadian Beasters, basically. Right. Uh, M23. Remember that one from Canada? Okay. That was one of the original ones from uh, what's now known as uh, uh, Sensi Seeds, uh, Super Sativa Seed Club. All their strains started with a M hyphen and then a number and for a reason I don't remember I have the catalog a copy of it but M23 was a big deal or something and so that later after that went down and they went legal becoming Sensi Seeds in a weird twist of fate uh, M23 lived on for again reasons that completely escaped me but yeah also Williams Wonder Look on a map sometime and look where Williams, Oregon is and uh, Wonder, Oregon. <laughs> yeah, track the miles anyway. Someone in chat says M39. Yeah. Show me anything worth smoking done in 39 days. I, that's mulch. Uh -huh. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy that one. I've seen so that there's a strain in Jamaica called 47 that finishes in about 50 days. 
that's about the fastest that I've seen that had proper trichome formation and like, you know, proper trichome head size. You know what I mean? Uh, but again, that was outdoor in the tropics in Jamaica. I've never seen that, you know, outside of that setting. There was a woman here in Portland a few years ago, a breeder, and, you know, she had a grocery store, that kind of thing, whatever. And uh, anyway, she claimed she had a 38-day equatorial sativa, 38 days. And uh, I wish uh, Bob was still on. He'd be on the floor, you know, laughing his ass off like I did, you know, when I went. He said, what do you think? She's really nice. He said, a lot of people are nice. What does that have to do with truth? No, it's impossible. <laughs> it couldn't possibly happen. I think the whole eight-week thing, that was started by Cervantes in his first book, uh, 40, what, 41 years ago, it's now, in, in what, the 30th edition or whatever it is. You know, the one where he told you to put your shit in the oven and bake it to kill the germs. So, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely been uh, an evolution in cannabis knowledge over the years, for sure. My, uh, the very first one I remember watching video-wise was, uh, remember Mr. Green Thumb? Guy was like dyed in green and he built like a bedroom and a flower room in the basement somewhere. I talked about the whole process. That was my very first video I ever watched on growing. And then I bought it, it was like, they used to sell these hacker CDs. They used to go to the hacker conventions and the computer conventions, they had these hacker tool CDs. A lot of times they would have like cannabis grow stuff or drug making stuff or like, you know, allegedly or other things like that, that were, you know, might be useful in a certain scenario. So that was one of the videos that was on one of them. It was super funny. We've we've yeah. come so far, but we have so far left to go, man. You know, anytime you have something that's now, now it's not illegal, it's quasi legal depending where you live. Okay, so but what what's ironic to me is the commercial side of this growth stores, at least in Portland and Seattle. Legalization brought nothing but havoc and wreck. I mean, they're gone. You know, you gotta, I'm not saying you can't go find stuff, but you know, I gotta, I'd have to drive 15 miles to go buy smart pots now. That's insane. Well, and, and like Seattle's been known for can or for uh, hemp fest for a long time, but right. look at what happened to hemp fest as legalization rolled. You can't even smoke at hemp fest anymore. Um, it's, it's, we had, you know, being uh, the little uh, sister of Seattle, we had to have stock fest or stock fest. I don't know. It was really stupid. Um, I know they're stupid and then you take it to a whole new level. So. Yeah, I remember this guy. I, I could never entertain him when I found yeah. him, but I remember him. Yeah, does anyone know what the hell happened to this guy? I would love to interview him. It'd be funny to find out whatever the hell happened to this dude. That would be great. Somewhere, but it'd be really funny to, like, 
who is this dude? I I actually spent a while looking for trying to figure out who the hell this dude was, and I never was able to track him down. Marty and I spent like a whole night or two on on just dicking around on Skype or whatever on uh, trying to find this dude, and we couldn't find him just because so many people. He was one of the very first people to put out a whole start to finish video that was like easily disseminated or widely disseminated in the digital era. And uh, yeah, it's, just, it's kind of this weird old relic. What a blast from the past, dude. I haven't seen that dude in years. Holy cow. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think a lot of people's uh, er, one of their early introductions. But yeah, if, if, if anyone does know a way to reach out to him or if he's, you know, not in prison and still alive, I would love to interview him. A lot of the early people, uh, you know, should happen. It'd be awesome if, if you did find him, if he hopped back on here green again, you know, <laughs> still painted. Yeah, yeah. We get lucky, man. We we've tracked down some weird and rare people once in a while. Some of the people through the show have have given us access to some some hard to track down people. We did the interview with Gypsy Nirvana right after he got out of prison, like the two weeks after he got out of the Thai jail or whatever. Or no, two weeks after he beat the extradition case against the U.S. That's what it was. That was a super crazy one. We we had a, a open cannabis project people on you know, right after that debacle and a bunch of other things. So we've had a lot of interesting and, you know, kind of hard to get interviews uh, on the show over the years. Hey, maybe you could get the guy that had that company Phototron. Which one? Phototron. Phototron? Mm -hmm. I don't know about, what's Phototron? Oh, the machine he had. It was self-contained uh, growing unit. <laughs> oh, is that the one that I used to sell in the back of High Times that had the yeah, whole booth? Dude, that would be super cool too, man. I haven't even yeah. thought about that in ages. Yeah, that was talk about a scam. My God, it had the uh, fluorescent lights in it, and uh, yeah, the whole nine yards. And you were like, you know, that was a lot more money then, so. You know, in the 80s, like early 80s to 30. Yeah, they were like $800 to a thousand. That'd be a couple of grand a day, wouldn't it? I think so. That'd easily be a couple grand a day, just considering the uh, the value of the dollar dropping, not considering even what's happened with cannabis markup, but just the value of the dollar dropping. Yeah, you're looking at a couple grand. Oh yeah. So what? Uh, I I was just down in Texas. Uh, what is y'all's opinion of Delta Eight? Because I was like, what the fuck? This is different. That was definitely my first. I have never been fully immersed in a Delta Eight market like that. That was a, a first for me. I, I, I don't know if you want me to answer that question. I have a hard time with some of the things, that we do as a culture, um, but that's because I'm very entrenched in herbalism, natural, ecological thinking. Um, 
I don't, I don't know if it has therapeutic benefit yet. I haven't really, I haven't really dived into it because I don't, I don't know that I would ever be a proponent of it. Um, but I still should probably do the research and educate myself. But um, to me, that's it. If it was naturally occurring, cool. But if you've got to make it in a lab, you lost me. That, that's the politest way I can put it. It is naturally occurring. You can just also convert other parts that naturally occurring into it. Well, basically, it's just a quasi-legal way to sell THC in Texas, let's just be honest. Yeah, that's what it seems like. It just seems like a workaround to turn hemp into something worth smoking. Um, but I don't know. Why don't you just, you know, anyway, laws are stupid. Why wouldn't you just grow the real thing? Yeah. Save the work, you know. But I, I don't, I say that uneducated. I don't know the benefits of Delta 8 or what is the other one? Delta... Is it Delta, Delta 10, 10 or the other one that's being pushed pretty heavy right now? That just, uh, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's the difference between chewing on a coca leaf and making cocaine. I mean, just from a manufacturing removal of, of the natural world to something that, you know, you need a lab to make, like not from a, a drug sort of thing, but just not being in touch with nature. It, it just seems very much like making any other sort of actual drug that I would have a problem with. It, it just seems like it's teetering on that line and that makes me uncomfortable. So maybe I've said enough that you can figure out where I'm going with that, but I'm trying not to hop on the soapbox and rah, rah, rah. Okay. So it's just, yeah, I don't, I don't see I don't see me having anything to do with it. Uh, what I am getting more and more interested in is the different cannabinoid profiles. Um, having high THC, well, I even hate high THC varieties, but having regular weed, as Cat Williams would say it, um, and then having like CBD varieties, CBG varieties, um, where you're doing traditional breeding to, to isolate these different cannabinoid profiles. Like that's more in line with what I'm, I'm about. Um, I even have issues sometimes most of the time with the, um, the whole dabbing culture. Like I, I concentrates are not how we've consumed the plant for, you know, eons. So, to, to see the rise of dabbing culture and to see the rise of added terpenes to these concentrates and having gone to school and, and having the anatomy and physiology of the human body pushed on me and realizing that what these large amounts of these terpenes and flavonoids on the sensitive tissues that are your lungs, um, it, I don't think we understand what we're doing to our bodies. And I think in 20 or 30 years, we're going to see some really profound studies about what the long-term effects are of these massive dabs or continual dabbing um, of these concentrates and this exposure to our lungs. I think we're going to see some really fascinating and, and 
this is slash horrific outcomes of long-term use and abuse of these concentrated medicines that I think are really only justified when the, uh, when the medical need outweighs the long-term damage, but we haven't done it for long enough to study the long-term damage because it's all fairly new, but now you have massive amounts of younger um, people in the population doing these things and they're going to grow up and by the time they're 50, 60, 70, what are their, how are their lungs even going to function after overexposure to especially terpenes? Terpenes, from an herbalism's perspective, there's only a couple of terpenes that are even safe to ingest in any form. The rest of them in their isolated form are topical only. Um, and we're going to go put those on our sensitive lung tissues. Um, anyway, I tried not to hop on one box and almost hopped on the other, but it, it, it's mind boggling from the, the medical background that I have that w this is such a common thing. I think, I think there's a lot of people in for a world of hurt in the long run. So I had a, someone that I know who has a cannabis podcast and he went and got the vaccine the other day. And the same day, suddenly is hyper allergic to dabs. Now, I'm not saying that they caused it, but it's an awfully strange thing. And I'm, if anyone else out there has had a similar experience, like it'd be interesting to find out more. But it was something that made me more think about, hey, could you know, is there a relation between immune response? Or maybe even if you just got the flu or something else that maybe you're suddenly, even something like that could also induce a similar type of you know, sudden sensitivity or, you know, to, especially like you're talking about the heavier intake, the, the, the concentrates where you have these ultra elevated lemonine levels. I know people that are hyper allergic to lemonine that they can set them into anaphylactic shock. I, I, I actually up in Tulsa, I know some people are like that. So, um, you know, there, there are actual known allergies that people have been tested for, or, Hey, they know they're allergic to a certain food. Um, and then all of a sudden they have a hyper allergic reaction to a, a, a specific uh, concentrate. Well, yeah, it's super high in a terpene that you already knew that you're allergic to, whatever. But I did find that it was super strange that uh, a friend of mine that is, you know, I've been a, a super heavy smoker for years, uh, suddenly can no longer smoke the same day that he happened to get a, the uh, uh, COVID vaccine. So I did find that, you know, awfully strange. So uh, the, what I will say is that I, so I was going to a medical school. I was rubbing shoulders with naturopathic doctors who were doing um, clinical hours in a clinical program tied to the university that I attended in the Pacific Northwest where the outbreak started for the US. Um, my partner got sick. I thought I was gonna lose her. Uh, she got sick. And we didn't know what it was. And it took, it took two weeks for her to get better. Luckily, the, the semester prior, I had gone through um, a class called First Aid for Herbalists. And in that class, we had to make a medicine kit uh, for personal use. And we got to choose what our what our medicine kit was for. And I made one for 
seasonal afflictions. Um, so when she got sick, she ran through my whole medicine kit. She took everything. She ended up using the whole kit and the kit was good for, it was probably a year's worth of medicine. She used the elderberry. She used the echinacea. She went through everything. She went through my meals, which are um, infused honeys. So I have, I have a belief that not only do we need herbal teas, but we need an herbal honey to complement that tea to get the full usage of that concoction that we're going to drink to feel better. She went through my teas. She went through my meals. She went through my syrups. She went through everything to get better. Um, she couldn't taste. That was, that was what really scared me. She didn't have any sense of taste. We have one syrup made from white whorehound and we, when we made it, we called it bitter ass syrup because it was so bitter that we couldn't even, we couldn't even lick the spoon clean. Um, when we were stirring it, we, we had to rinse the spoon off. We couldn't stand the taste of it enough to lick the spoon clean. And she got sick and she started drinking that stuff wholesale. Um, about six weeks later, COVID was a thing. It was all over the news. It was running through nursing homes locally. Um, and I had a, I had a gut feeling and I've always trusted my gut intuition that not only had we already been exposed, but that my campus was covered in COVID and, um, anyway, so to, to transition from that story to what you were talking about, there's a, a video I seen today. I think I reposted it on my IG story about a doctor testifying in front of what I believe is a Senate committee. I could be wrong. I don't know, but he was highlighting how exposure to um, COVID and what it does to your natural immunity, how that can be complicated and detrimental to your health, AKA really mess you up if you are, have already been exposed to COVID and then go get the vaccine. It, it can lead to a whole series of uh, issues. It, it can complications. It can um, it can it can really mess you up. I'm not a doctor, so, so I don't like to use so, those so words. He, he's the he's the vector that I how I got COVID. He had had COVID fully, you know, a COVID infection, and then got the vaccine. So that would make sense in that line of thought. That that is the exact scenario that did happen. That's and that's where I was going is maybe he had already had and now you're you're clarifying that he did and that that might be the issue is that he had it he had natural immunity then he put the vaccine on it insert problems um, anyway that's where I was going with that I just I got a little personal on the on the journey so thanks for hanging with me and that's 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 the exact reason why I'm against the whole passport thing with with vaccines and all that is that because of this type of thing where we do need to figure out if that is a danger or not. We, 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 that needs to be known before we have these things that are, are gatekeeping people. Anyway, yeah. Personal rent. Yeah. But something that, that, that just suddenly happened this week that again, was a friend of mine. He works at a dispensary. He's, he's a bud tender. He also wor works part-time in their grow as well. Uh, he splits his time between the two and he, you know, he has a whole podcast 
uh, you know, that uh, he runs and uh, I called the Smokehouse Shit Show. And um, he, you know, <coughs> it's suddenly he can't smoke cannabis anymore after that. And there is no other same day within an hour of, of getting that he can't smoke anymore. He has this very severe reaction. Uh, you know, I won't go into specifics because I don't want to give away his, his info, but, um, you know, information on a specific condition. But, you know, very much affects him severely if he does smoke. So again, we, we need to know more about what that is doing to people um, before we, we go and try to, you know, make everyone get these types of things. Yeah, so like, long, you know, long story short, I'm, I'm not in line to get the vaccine, um, but that's because I've been exposed. I took care of her for two weeks while she tried to get better. I kissed her on the forehead. I made her drinks for her. I made her food for her. I sat next to her. I rubbed her back, dude. Like if I was going to have COVID, I would have got COVID because she had COVID and I was there with her. Um, so that I'm, I'm not in line to go get the vaccine, but it's with that understanding that I have built natural immunity um, that I would say no, you know, and and the 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 gentleman in the video goes on to say that uh, natural immunity is more robust than vaccine immunity, and he cites Spanish flu and other other instances where um, natural immunity has shown to be a lifelong thing, where vaccine immunity has a limited limited lifespan. Uh, but I, that's probably the end of my my whole vaccine talk that I should give. <laughs> it's just something that i just wanted to, you know it's something that i had never heard of before this week when my friend was like hey uh, uh fumador just took off um i wanted to give fumador a shout out he, uh, he has an amazing show over at fumador on the flavors uh, he does his on wednesdays uh tuesdays and saturdays and if he does another show i apologize but uh, but uh, hopefully I remembered all of them, but definitely check him out over Fumador on the Flavors. Coot and I and Cascadia are all regular guests over there. We have a good time as well as a bunch of other people. And uh, we always have a really, really fun day over there. So definitely something I wanted to touch on uh, a little bit earlier on as far as, you know, again, I had no one, I had never heard of anyone having a cannabis response to, to the vaccine in any way, shape or form until someone I know who is not only a, a podcaster, but also a dispensary and cannabis industry worker, suddenly having a very severe reaction and that being the only thing. And then uh, I got infected. Uh, he has a, when we did our own episode for his podcast, I, we're 95% sure that's where we got exposed. If not, it was that same day, you know, we've narrowed it down to then. So, um, all right, Jim, uh, you got to take off, bud. Yeah, you, you got to turn the microphone on. Yeah, have a good evening and uh, good talking to you guys. And uh, as always, it was a pleasure. Awesome, but and uh, I look forward to having you on the uh, the conference coming up here in November. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we uh, had to go through getting our taxes, you know, wrapped up this week and. I always put it off, you know, it's the last day driving to the goddamn, uh, you know, just the, the deal. So nice to see you, man. 
Have a good evening. I can't believe they tax uh, people on Social Security. It blows my mind. I mean, just cut their, you know, cut their compensation. You know, why do you have to go through a, a rigmarole? All right. Uh, All right. Take it easy, man. Thanks. All right. Take care, guys. Yeah. Here's nice to see you. All right, Cascadian. Uh, <laughs> I think we'll wrap the show up here. Uh, it's getting kind of late too, and. Uh, why don't you tell everybody how to find you? You do a lot, a lot of different content and a lot of cool stuff you, you're doing. So uh, why don't you tell everybody how to find you? Yeah, man. Thanks for letting me pop in here and, and give everybody the razzmatazz. Uh, you're looking for me, Cascadian Grown on Instagram. Um, yeah, let's 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 leave it there. If you want some um, some veggie seeds, herb seeds, I'm doing a little bit of that. Just DM me. I'll get you to the to the right place uh got some seed separators i'm working on as well again just dm me and i'll get you to the right place um but yeah man i, I appreciate you letting me in let me say hi and hang out and it was quite the panel you had tonight um i'd love to you know get to know you more talk to you more interact with you more so feel free to reach out whenever you're comfortable or got time or what the deal is you know okay i will definitely get you back on the show again soon cool man Coming in, uh, Marty, I'm sure uh, has had other things going. If he's there, maybe uh, maybe he'll suddenly uh, chime back in. All right, well, Marty and I also have the uh, APMJclass.com. You guys can check that out. Um, we have this week, this Sunday is actually our live session. Um, so if you're looking for the Sunday live session, we do two live sessions a month. Uh, to help students and walk them through different content. We also, hey, if you bring up a topic that we don't have slides on yet, Marty and I actually take the time on, on the day before to actually make up slides. So if you, as long as you get your questions in by Saturday morning, uh, we spend Saturday afternoon making up new slides and content. So if there is content that we haven't covered, um, you know, we try to make sure that we kind of answer that more video format. That it also goes up, at, you know, as part of the, the class content. So, you know, that's permanently part of the additional class going forward. So. Um, definitely check that out. We have a, a ton of content on there as well as uh, apmjnutes.com if you're looking for uh, that type of stuff for uh, for nutrients that are fish safe. So you can check that out there. And um, we have the uh, 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 virtual aquaponic cannabis conference coming up in November. Uh, if you're an aquaponic cannabis grower and you're interested in participating as a speaker, uh, we have three panels, one on home grower, one on craft growers, and one for commercial growers. If you're interested, we are looking for a handful of additional panelists that are aquaponic cannabis growers or utilizing aquaculture as part of their soil growing uh, to be speakers. So um, uh, on those particular panels, we have one or two more slots left for each of those panels. Uh, so please reach, reach out to us if you are a grower and we are not aware of you. We'd love to hear from you and, and your style uh, because uh, you know we had a really cool uh, experience last year. We had 14 different speakers. This year we already have 20 three speakers booked already and we're uh, we might even add a third day to the conference because we have so many so we're super stoked on that um we have a, a bunch of additional content we're going to kind of change the format a little bit more this year have some farm tours and then um uh uh some seminars as well uh, and then some panels so it's going to be kind of a different format than last year and uh yeah it'll be a good time so Thanks everybody for watching. Check me out at AP uh, and uh, uh, Marty at AP uh, AP Meds on YouTube, SoundCloud, uh, and um, Patreon. 
and Instagram. And you can find me on Potent Ponics, YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, uh, all the things. Uh, and uh, we'll see you guys again next week. We have some super cool guests in the queue uh, that I, I will keep uh, secret for now. And uh, 